Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com There's another thing that that had a a big impact on my thinking that I would recommend to you if you can get a copy of it. I I, I found a copy on the internet about two, three, four years ago, and I want to make sure I can understand, remember the guy's name. Um, the guy was the, the, the he was the, 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 the guy who did the Sunrise Semester, I think it was, on NBC. And he, at one time, was the, was the chairman of the National Conference of Christian, I mean, I'm sorry, National Conference of English Instructors, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm trying to think of his name, it'll come to me. He, he delivered a speech one time to the National Congress, and it was it was the the keynote speech, and I couldn't believe it because I hope this doesn't offend your your listeners or anything, but it's it, it's it's a very meaningful statement. The, the 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 title of the speech was "Bullshit and the Art of Crap Detection." Hmm, and okay. Meaningful things I've ever read. He starts out by talking about Curtis Hemingway. And he says, you know, he asked Papa Doc one time, he said, how do you get to be an excellent writer? And Papa Doc said, it's easy. You have a built-in foolproof crap detector. And he, he goes on to discuss BS, and he labels it. You know, and one of the types he labels is this idea of, of uh, BS uh, with, um, under the cover of, of, um, of knowledge. And he said, you know, like, like, Preachers, and priests, and cops—they—they they, they have all these badges and all this stuff that say that they are supposed to know what they're talking about. Yes, sir. But they don't, you know. And that's one of the things he said. That one of the examples he gives is is the the, the school bursar who has who writes a, a a letter to a person's scholarship that's just been canceled, 
and the guy says that we are we're happy to inform you. <laughs> he's a school person. You don't know the difference. But the other one, one oh, it's a brilliant damn thing he said. Um, uh, anyway, I can't think of it. But it, 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 it's an example. Oh, I know. I know what it was. It, it, he was talking about Johnny Carson's show. And who was it? Ed McMahon? That, that yes, sir. Be Johnny Carson? He said, inanity is a type of BS. And he said, now, inanity is, you know, uh, like Johnny Carson on, on civil rights uh, or um, uh, Ed McMahon on anything, you know. And he said, for example, he said, one night Ed McMahon was talking on Johnny Carson's show, and he said that this, the idea of something or other was um, controversial. And um, he said, I wanted to fire a, uh, a telegram to Johnny Carson on stage and ask him if he was for or against it. Because... <laughs> It, 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 it was it was the kind of thing that wasn't controversial at all, but he thought it, he thought he was using the right word when he said it was controversial. But anyway, try to see if you can find that. Neil Postman was the guy's name. Oh, I am a big fan of Neil Postman. Uh, yes. Can can you give us the title again of uh, of this work? And the art of crap detection. It's it's a speech that he delivered to the National Conference of Teachers of English. Wow. And he you know, he died a couple of years ago. Wow. I'm, I, I, big, oh, I'm a tremendous fan of Neil Postman. I, I read uh, Stupid Talk, Crazy Talk, and I also read uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Neil Postman, he spends a lot of time talking about the importance of words That's right. and context. I'm a big Neil Postman fan. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, October 13th, 2017. So I have been told this is our Friday book study session. Thank goodness we are done with France Fanon. I could jump, skip, dance. (laughs) Woo! Euphoria. Our new book. Neil Postman, Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk, How We Defeat Ourselves by the Way We Talk, and What to Do About It. This is our debut session book I'm very excited to read. It's been a decade since I've read this book. Uh, In fact, you heard that audio segment with the late Chet Detlinger. He wrote the book, The List, about the quote-unquote Atlanta child murders. Uh, He was the very first guest that we had on the program when the cows returned to the air in February 2009. He mentioned Neil Postman. You heard him right there. Uh, Very first time we get back on the air. But this book had a huge impact uh, on the cows. My thinking, I read this book months before uh, the cows originally came Uh, into existence in 2007. I read this book and I read one of his other books, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I think that's a more popular title, but man, oh man, this text, I think it gives a lot of great information in terms of how we use words, really paying attention to the way that we use words and respecting uh, the way that words influence our thinking. 
uh, and can in fact disrupt our thinking uh, when they are not being used correctly. Talking about words, man, to read this and I can give you the sequencing. I read this material just before, literally months before I began to speak to Mr. Fuller on the phone, got his book, lots of that. This book really did a great job with regards to laying a foundation for applying, really being careful and scientific about the use of words as you go about the business of counter-racism. Very eager, going ahead to get started. Uh, this book is being narrated by Mel, uh, Cal's listener, investor. She also read the autobiography of Asada, Shak uh, Asada Shakur a few years back, uh, and I believe uh, her partner narrated uh Lothrop Stoddard's The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. I think he pitched in and did the editing for the audio. So we had kind of a group collaborative effort uh, for the project. But uh, without further delay, we will get started. Neil Postman, Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk, How We Defeat Ourselves by the Way We Talk and What to Do About It. Neil Postman. One should, each day, try to hear a little song, read a good poem, see a fine picture, and, if it is possible, speak a few reasonable words. Goeth. Forward. This is a book about talk. Not every kind of talk, but the kind which I think it useful and virtuous to expose as crazy or stupid. I do not believe there exists a technical definition of either of these accusations, but, if there does, I am not using it here. Stupid talk, as I mean the phrase, is talk that has, among other difficulties, a confused direction, or an inappropriate tone, or a vocabulary not well suited to its context. It is talk, therefore, that does not and cannot achieve its purposes. To accuse people of stupid talk is to accuse them of using language ineffectively, of having made harmful but correctable mistakes in performance. It is a serious matter, but not usually dreadful. Crazy talk is something else, and is almost always dreadful. As I will use the phrase, crazy talk is talk that may be entirely effective, but which has unreasonable or evil or sometimes overwhelmingly trivial purposes. It is talk that creates an irrational context for itself, or sustains an irrational conception of human interaction. It, too, is correctable but only by improving our values, not our competence. What I am investigating in this book is how, through lack of knowledge, awareness, or discipline, we frequently talk both crazy and stupid, and thereby create mischief and pain. The purpose of the book is to indicate how we can reduce such talk to tolerable levels, so that our verbal behavior will not be an excessive burden to ourselves and others. This is no easy matter to do. The subject is filled with complexity, contradiction, and general confusion. For example, on the day I am writing these words, there is a story in the newspapers about the late J. Edgar Hoover. It informs us that Hoover's car was once struck from behind while it was making a left turn. As a consequence, Hoover forbade all left turns on any of his automobile trips, including trips of several hundred miles. Assuming the political pun to be irrelevant here, how could one have persuaded Mr. Hoover that there was something wrong with the way he had formulated his problem? Do you suppose it would have made a difference if someone had explained to him that cars do not make left turns, only drivers do, and that one bad turn does not foretell another? 
or that the usual 10-minute trip from the FBI building to his favorite Washington restaurant would, under his rules, now take him through Norwalk, Connecticut. I doubt it, and for a few reasons. The first is that the process of anthropomorphizing, of attributing human qualities to inanimate objects, such as cars, is a very difficult speech habit to break. It is more than likely that Hoover was partial to his habit, and would not have found it easy to eliminate from his strategies for thinking. The second is that we are all somewhat in love with our ways of talking about the world, whatever deformities such talk might have, and it takes some doing to convince any of us that our favorite sentences often betray our best interests. But even more important, on what grounds could we argue that our sense of the problem is more legitimate than his? Hoover obviously thought that his problem was cars that make left turns. We can see, I assume, that his problem had to do with the directions of thinking and talking, not turning. What is the standard which gives us the authority to instruct him? Who is to say which of us is seeing the matter correctly? You'll be pleased to know that there are standards by which to judge these matters, and, if I have done this book right, these will be visible to you before long. Meanwhile, here is another sort of problem of the type to which we will have to address ourselves. A few years ago, Richard Nixon put forward a man by the name of Clement Hainsworth to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court. It was agreed by everyone that Hainsworth was, in every sense, a mediocre candidate. He had certainly been a mediocre lawyer and judge. In arguing for Hainsworth's appointment, Roman Hruschka, presently senator from Nebraska, remarked with serious intent that since there were so many mediocre people in America, they were entitled to be represented by a mediocre Supreme Court justice. Now, this application of the language of representative government has many rich possibilities. One might argue, for example, that America needs mediocre brain surgeons to operate on all those people with mediocre brains. Or Richard Nixon, on the basis of this sort of reasoning, could have defended himself by arguing that since there are so many criminals in America, they deserve to be represented by a president who is himself a criminal. In any case, I think you can see that this type of thinking can generate a considerable amount of stupid talk. Is there any way to change Senator Hrushka's point of view by making him more aware of his language? I think there is. Our language structures the very way we see, and any significant change in our ways of talking can lead to a change in point of view. Nonetheless, stupid and crazy talk is a large and even mysterious subject, and one has to approach it with a proper respect for the idiosyncrasies of human perception. With this in mind, I intend to show how one may proceed in approaching the subject. What questions need to be asked? What considerations must be given? What criteria may reasonably be used to avoid the mismanagement of our thinking, talking? Obviously, then, there's a question you will want to have answered before going any further. By what authority do I write such a book? I am, after all, claiming special knowledge in a very broad area of human behavior. I have five answers to this question, but only the last of them is any good. The first three are, themselves, excellent examples of stupid talk. In order, here they are. I am a professor of communication at New York University. I have written previously on this subject. I have been given awards testifying that I know what I am talking about. This one was suggested to me by the Wizard of Oz. The fourth is not quite so obviously stupid, although it is far from convincing. I have spent 15 years making systematic observations of how people talk. 
and trying to explain to myself why talk so often confounds our purposes. Please note the nature of the question I have been asking. I have not been trying to find out what intelligent talk is. I have been trying to find out what dumb talk is. In this respect, I have modeled my inquiries after those of doctors and lawyers. What is the first question a doctor or a lawyer will ask you when you seek his or her advice? Is it something like, what's the trouble? Even the wisest of them cannot tell you what good health is or what justice is. They can only say what bad health is and whether or not an injustice has been done. We might even say that, to a doctor, good health is the absence of bad health. To a lawyer, justice is the absence of injustice. Some people say that this is not the right way to look at the matter, and perhaps they are correct. But I know very few people who will consult a doctor to get an opinion on what is good health, and I know even fewer who will approach a lawyer to find out what justice is. In any case, in my own inquiries into talk, I have discovered that the varieties of effective, purpose-enhancing talk are so diverse and unpredictable as to defy classification. Not so the varieties of destructive talk, like illness and injuries, they are identifiable, their properties are discussable, and I have reason to believe that, within limits, they are reducible. Which leads me to the fifth and final answer to the question. By what authority do I write this book? The answer is, the book itself. If you find that its perspective is usable in helping you manage your language affairs, then for you, this book may be considered authoritative, and for its author, an authority. If you do not find it so, then there is no help for me. My professorship, previous writings, awards, and research will not protect me from the charge that I have wasted your time. By assuming you find the book useful, there is still another question you might want answered before going on. What is the theoretical basis of my approach to the problem? There are, of course, no chairs for the study of stupid talk in our university, and no one has ever received a Nobel Prize for uncovering the underlying structure of crazy talk. Perhaps someday, crazy talk and stupid talk will be considered important enough to make into a subject in our schools, let us say, at least as important as public speaking or business administration or Elizabethan non-dramatic literature. Meanwhile, those of us interested in the matter must find our ideas wherever we can. In my case, this has meant turning to people such as Karl Popper, George Herbert Mead, Alfred Korzybski, I. A. Richards, George Orwell, Lewis Mumford, Gregory Bateson, Wendell Johnson, Kenneth Burke, and Saul Alinsky. You may be relieved to know I have not cluttered the text with elaborate explanations of how I am using their ideas, especially since I no longer know what I have taken from them. I do, however, and most emphatically relieve them of all responsibility for such stupidities as you may find in the text. And speaking of the text, you may find it useful to know that it is divided into three parts. In part one, I try to put forward the general framework of the problem, including toward the end, a relatively clear distinction between a crazy talk and stupid talk. Part two consists of 17 small chapters, each of which identifies and tries to explain a particular characteristic of such talk. These characteristics include certain beliefs, speech habits, and structural aspects of language which, if not carefully controlled, leads us into talking crazy or stupid. Part 3 is a single chapter, in which I try to suggest a point of view we may adopt, which, it seems to me, will help us to keep well clear of such talk. Finally, 
this is probably the place for me to clarify a certain semantic point which, if left murky, may cause trouble. Several writers have pointed out that roughly one-third of all the verbs we use in normal discourse are some form of the verb to be. And further, there are some forms of it that are exceedingly cunning in confounding our understanding. One of these is sometimes called the is of projection, as in the sentence, he is stupid. What is mysterious about this sentence is that, through a kind of grammatical alchemy, it creates the impression that stupidity is an innate property of whomever you are talking about. Like, for example, the person's height or weight or eye color. But stupidity is no such thing. It is a behavior, done at a particular time and in particular circumstances. This means that in discussing stupidity, we are not talking about those who just have it and those who don't. We are talking about the ways in which people do stupidity. One can even do stupidity or craziness on purpose in order to achieve certain rational ends. For example, I have seen men in the army go into well-practiced stupid routines in order to avoid being chosen for odious tasks. I have also seen both men and women do the same, and for the same reason in domestic settings. And it is by no means rare for a child to do this in school. Paul Goodman called this reactive stupidity. But in these cases, the doer has himself under control. It is the situation that is out of his control. What I mean by control is a thorough awareness of what is going on in the situation, including your own responses to it. But what we are concerned with in this book is doing stupidity or craziness when it is not what you intended to do. But what we are concerned with in this book is doing stupidity or craziness when it is not what you intended, or, if it is, doing it with hideous consequences to someone else. Part 1. The Semantic Environment Stupidity is words. It's not something people possess, like their kidneys. Stupidity is something we speak, sentences that do not make sense or are self-defeating. We may speak such sentences to others or only to ourselves, but the point is that stupidity is something we do with our larynx. What our larynx does is controlled by the way we manage our minds. No one knows, of course, what mind is, and there are even those who think that it is wise to avoid discussing altogether, but this much we can say. The main stuff of the mind is sentences. Minding and language are, for all practical purposes, one and the same. When we are thinking, we are mostly arranging sentences in our heads. When we are thinking stupid, we are arranging stupid sentences. I will go so far as to say that the entire subject matter of stupidity is encompassed by the study of our ways of talking. Even when we do a nonverbal stupid thing, like smoking a cigarette, one of my own cherished stupidities, we have preceded the act by talking to ourselves in such a way as to make it appear reasonable. One might say that stupid talk is the generative act from which all higher stupidities flow. The word, in a word, brings forth the act. Moreover, stupidity is something of a linguistic achievement. It does not, I believe, come naturally to us. We must learn how to do it and practice how to do it. Naturally, once having learned and practiced it, we find it difficult, possibly painful, to forget how to do it. Speaking, after all, is a habit, and habits, by definition, are hard to break. Craziness is much the same thing. 
Crazy behavior is produced by our generating certain kinds of sentences which we have nurtured and grown to love. When, for example, Lynette Fromm was sentenced to life imprisonment for attempting to assassinate Gerald Ford, she said, I want Charles Manson out. I want a world of peace. Considering the hideous circumstances by which Manson came to be imprisoned, and considering what most people mean by peace, you might say that Miss Fromm exhibited an almost wondrous creativity in putting those two sentences together. We can fairly assume that she sees a connection between them. There are, no doubt, several unspoken sentences by which she has formed a bridge between Manson and peace. Even further, there must still be more sentences by which she connects Manson and peace to the assassination of Ford. Crazy acts are not illogical to those who do them, but the point is that in order to do them, you must first build a verbal empire of intricate dimension. A great deal of crazy talk must be processed before assassination will appear as a reasonable thing to do. And so, this book is an inquiry into some of the dimensions of crazy and stupid talk, two of our older nemesis. But let me make no bones about what is going on here. Stupid and crazy talk are not objective facts, like a disease or a famine or a war. They are accusations made by one individual about the talking behavior of another or a group of individuals. They are labels, a taxonomy of ridicule, by which a person denounces what he believes is an inappropriate way to speak and therefore to conduct oneself. Thus, to condemn the way people talk is a form of personal and cultural criticism, its value depending on the knowledge and art of the critic, as well as the seriousness of his point of view. For reasons which are not entirely clear to me, there are critics of talk who fix their attention on the way people enunciate or how they pronounce their words, or on their standard deviations from grammatical propriety. This, too, is an exercise in cultural criticism, but in my opinion, of such trivial nature that it is a wonder that anyone does it. If Lynette Fromm had said, I wants Manson out, I wants a world of peace, we could scarcely improve her or ourselves by reviewing the rules of grammatical concordance. We would still be faced with the question, what are the sentences in her head that led her to connect these two desires and then connect them with the prospect of a fallen Gerald Ford? Although there are some circumstances in which criticism of the cosmetic features of language may have substance, in general I suspect that the critic who is preoccupied with it has not thought deeply on the subject. To paraphrase as a remark by I.A. Richards about superficiality and criticism of poetry, we pay attention to externals when we are at a loss for anything else to say. In any event, the road taken here is one that has previously been traveled by critics who were willing to set standards, not of pronunciation and grammar, but of purpose and meaning, and indeed reason itself. But what is reason? And how do we know when it has been breached? And in what circumstances can we do without it? And is reasonableness the same in all circumstances? These are some of the questions which have been addressed by the most serious critics of language and thought. Wittgenstein, Richards, Dewey, Korbischke, Orwell, to name a few. They have been willing to offer us rules for managing our thought, rules of semantic order, rules, if you will, for avoiding stupid or crazy talk. Some of their advice has been, in my opinion, unimpeachable, but some of it seems to me quite suspicious. For example, in his famous essay, Politics and the English Language, George Orwell offered some forthright rules which he hoped people would follow as a means of improving the use of language, and therefore their ways of behaving themselves. 
Included among these rules is the advice never to use a long word where a short one will do, never to use a metaphor which you are used to seeing in print, and never use a foreign phrase or scientific word if you can think of an everyday equivalent. If we merely simplify our language, Orwell told us, we will know when we are talking nonsense. To quote him, quote, When you make a stupid remark, its stupidity will be obvious, even to yourself. Unquote. Now this has got to be one of the stupidest remarks George Orwell ever committed to print. In fact, it is self-canceling, since, if it is true, then why wasn't George Orwell aware of how stupid his remark was? The answer is that the statement isn't true. One's own stupidity is almost never self-evident, even when you have become accustomed to using original, short, and everyday words, and even if you have faithfully read George Orwell. It may be a good idea sometimes to use short words instead of long ones, or everyday words instead of obscure ones, but the problem of recognizing one's own stupidities as well as someone else's goes much deeper than Orwell's advice suggests. We may indeed learn to recognize stupid talk, but it is not accomplished by obedience to a few simple rules, as Orwell, incidentally, knew perfectly well. What is wrong with Orwell's advice is that it is unecological. It places language outside of any context in which it is used, and by doing so, it falsifies the real process by which our judgments, is it smart, dumb, sane, crazy, are made. Here is a small example of what I mean by unecological. I once had to give a speech in Darien, Connecticut. When I arrived at the auditorium where it was to take place, my host looked at his watch, noted the time of my arrival, and then said, You certainly made good time in getting here. Now this was impossible for him to know, since he was unaware of A, when I had started from, and B, what time I had left. By knowing only when I had arrived, he did not know enough to judge whether or not I had made good time. It is with the same stupid or crazy talk. By knowing only what someone has said, we do not know enough to judge even its meaning, let alone its quality. To determine that, we must take into account what I am going to call the semantic environment. Now, the idea of a semantic environment will not easily make sense to you if you are strongly inclined toward the ping-pong ball theory of communication, as many people seem to be. In the ping-pong ball theory, communication is conceived of as a discrete, quantifiable piece of stuff that will move from one source to another and then back. If I say something to you, you then say something to me, I reply, you come back with another message, and so on. It's as if two machines were conversing, playing with words, so to speak, each talking its turn in delivering a message. That is the trouble, of course, with the theory. It treats people as if they were machines and makes a study of communication a branch of classical physics. People seem to be sources, their words become message units, and their purposes and situations become irrelevant. Our attention gets directed to such matters as the quantity of messages, the force of messages, the speed of messages, the efficiency of receptors, and so on. And when we seek advice on how to communicate better, the theory tells us to make our messages shorter or slower and more familiar or more redundant. In the ping-pong ball theory, it's not even necessary to distinguish between machine and machine talk and people and people talk. The metaphor of a semantic environment invites an entirely different view of the situation. It says the communication is not stuff or bits or messages. In a way, it is not even something that people do. Communication is a situation in which people participate, rather like the way a plant participates in what we will call its growth. A plant does not exactly grow because it does something. 
Growth is a consequence of complex transactions among the plant, the soil, the air, the sun, and the water, all in the proper proportions and at the proper time, according to the proper rules. If there is no sun or water, there is nothing much the plant can do about growing, and if there is no semantic environment, there is nothing much we can do about communicating. If communication is to happen, we require not merely messages, but an ordered situation in which messages can assume meaning. Therefore, a semantic environment includes, first of all, people, second, their purposes, third, the general rules of discourse by which such purposes are usually achieved, and fourth, the particular talk actually being used in the situation. There's much more to it than this, as I hope to show, but for the moment, let's say there are these four elements. Now, because there are so many different kinds of roles for people to play, and so many different human purposes, there are many different kinds of semantic environments, each with special rules by which people are expected to conduct themselves. Science is a semantic environment. So is politics, commerce, war, sports, religion, lovemaking, lawmaking, among others. Each of these situations is a social structure in which people want to do something to, for, with, or against other people, as well as to, for, with, or against themselves. I am referring to those semantic environments which give form to our most important human transactions. Moreover, within any one of those semantic environments, there are many sub-environments which, when taken together, compromise the larger environment. For example, the confessional is a semantic environment. For example, the confessional is a semantic environment within the larger semantic environment of religion. To judge whether or not someone's verbal conduct is stupid or crazy, one must have some knowledge not only of the rules of discourse of a sub-environment, example the confessional, but also of the larger environment of which it is a part, i.e. religion. The words, Father, I have sinned, can be judged perfectly reasonable when uttered inside a box that is inside a church to a man who wears a special garment and is pledged to secrecy. But the same words come out stupid talk when uttered inside an office building elevator to a man who is reading popular mechanics and is on his way to the dentist. So the first thing we need to recognize is that in thinking about talk, we're dealing with a multifaceted social situation. What makes crazy talk crazy or stupid talk stupid is not the language people use, but the relationships of their remarks to the totality of the situation that they are in. And that totality always includes people, purposes, principles, and performance. And so our first problem is to identify in a general way the type of semantic environment we are dealing with. Unless we know that, we can scarcely say anything about the sanity or wisdom of people's language behavior. Now, sometimes it is very easy to tell what sort of situation people are in, and sometimes it is not. A man in a witness box, or a confessional box, or a batter's box, has already shown you almost all you need to know about the situation he is in. It should not be difficult to guess what sort of sentences ought to come out of his mouth. The purposes and rules of such situations are fairly well known, and the batter, for example, who knows? And the batter, for example, who turns to the umpire and says, Father, I have sinned, is either trying to make a bad joke or needs a psychiatrist more than a priest or an umpire. A man in a witness box is in an even more rigorously ordered semantic environment than the ball field. In fact, the courtroom is one of the few environments in our society where there is an official umpire whose job is to monitor the appropriateness of the remarks people make. In most other situations, the umpire 
is not a specially trained, disinterested party, but merely the person you are talking to. Someone who, instead of intoning, your remarks are out of order, mumbles silently, what an idiotic thing to say. For example, imagine a young woman beginning to stir with romantic feeling on a beach in Waikiki. She sighs to her boyfriend, isn't that sunset gorgeous? Now imagine her boyfriend replying, well, strictly speaking, the sun is not setting, nor does it ever do so. The sun, you see, is in a relatively fixed position in relation to the earth. So, to speak precisely, one ought to say that the earth is rising. A very good sentence for a general science class in junior high school, but an exceedingly dumb one on a beach in Waikiki, or even Rockaway, as the boyfriend will learn soon if he tries that sentence one more time. But sometimes it is not so easy to know what sort of situation we are in, and then it takes some work to know how we are to construe the remarks of other people. Consider, for example, a sentence that appears in a horoscope column in a daily newspaper. Here is a typical but fabricated one, largely because it has proved difficult to obtain permission from horoscope writers to have their sentences analyzed. Quote, Prepare yourself for all situations and do not act until you have considered the matter fully. Unquote. Naturally, our first question is to consider about what sort of environment we are being invited to join. Obviously, we are being given advice of some sort, and as a parting shot from your father as you leave home for the first time, the advice is not all out bad. It is certainly no worse than know thyself or neither a borrower nor a lender be. But since the column is called a horoscope, we have reason to infer that the writer is drawing on resources not readily available to Socrates, Polonius, or other fatherly people. Even so, as a prediction of things to come or as a message from the cosmos, the advice seems to lack both precision and weight, to say the least. The writer does not do much better in addressing Sagittarians, who are advised to, quote, be calm even in the face of disappointment difficulties will iron themselves out, unquote. Here, the advice is rather dubious, especially the part about difficulties getting ironed. Still, one expects rather more substance than this from the stars. And so, we now must get serious and insist on knowing exactly what the semantic environment of which these remarks are a part. Well, we all know that astrologers are inclined to represent themselves as forecasters, and therefore, we may guess that their intention is to replicate the function of science. If that is the case here, we've got our first really good example of stupid talk. Since the main purpose of the semantic environment called science is to produce reliable and predictable knowledge about the world, the rules of scientific discourse are fairly precise. We are obliged, for example, to put our statements in such a form that they are either verifiable or refutable. We are also obliged to have our statements open to public scrutiny, to express ourselves at all times tentatively to define our terms concretely, and to keep our language relatively free of ambiguity. The astrologer easily passes the test of public scrutiny, but on all other counts, her performance is deplorable. The closest she comes to predictive statement is her remarks to Taurus. Quote, Today there will be an unusual development. People will accept your ideas. Unquote. And to Aries, quote, a long-hoped-for opportunity will arrive this evening, unquote. An unusual development? A long-hoped-for opportunity? Well, these could be anything, couldn't they? There's nothing here that lends itself to much verification or refutation, except in the most objective way, and yet the writer speaks without apology or hesitation. 
Perhaps that is why she speaks without apology or hesitation. In any case, we needn't dwell too long on the point. As science, such language is stupid talk, pure and simple, and you don't need any instruction to come to this conclusion. But suppose this language is not intended as science. In that case, the rules of scientific talk would not apply in judging it. Well, if you examine enough astrological predictions, a reasonable alternative comes to mind. It becomes almost obvious that we're being invited to participate in a religious situation of some sort. What we are given, more or less continuously, are secular mini-sermons to Capricorn. Quote, Do not complicate your life. Finish what you have started. Unquote. Who talks like this, if not a preacher? To Leo. Quote, Rid yourself of what you do not need. Unquote. A saint might say this with more elegance, but it would appear that the writer is coming much closer to the business of religion than that of science. It is true that nowhere in this language or any other horoscope is the authority of God invoked, but an astrologer does almost as well by invoking the authority of the stars. Both God and the stars have this in common. No evidence is required to support their injunctions. What is written is written, and that is sufficient. And so, we are drawn to the conclusions that astrologers are in the stately and profound realm of religion. And we must now ask, what are the purposes of religious talk? What are its rules? And finally, how well do those astrologers do it? In general, we may say that the semantic environment we call religion serves at best to minimize fear and isolation and to increase freedom and to provide a sense of continuity and oneness. Religious language achieves these purposes by creating metaphors and myths which give concrete form to our most profound fears and exaltations. Above all, religious language provides people with a coherent system of principles by which they may give ethical purpose and direction in their lives. If you will accept this hasty statement of the purposes of religious language, then perhaps you will conclude, as I do, that my hypothetical astrologer's attempt to dwell in this realm is very close to depraved. She offers her readers almost the exact opposite of what religions hope to achieve. She gives advice, all right, but it is capricious, unprincipled, and without transcendent purpose. Her language is a reproach, and there is no ethical reason why anyone would do anything. That saint who tells you to simplify your life, and the preacher who advises you to rid yourself of what you do not need, speak from a reasonably ordered point of view. They are making commentaries on some central moral doctrine. They have reasons. But in astrological theory, there are no reasons, which is why a reader must check every day to get new instructions. Since this is religion without an ethical basis, the reader cannot internalize a pattern of behavior and project it onto the future. The stars are just as likely to advise you to strike your neighbor's cheek as to offer your own. There is this difference between the stars and God. They both tell you what to do, but the stars do not tell you why. God doesn't always tell you either, and even then we assume an ethical basis to his demands. And so as I come to this conclusion, my astrologer is no linguistic fumbler. She uses simple, easy, accessible words, and her advice is not difficult to follow. Put her sentence in the mouth of a minister, and most of them will make quite good sense. But for all this, the language is crazy talk. As an expression of ethical or religious sentiment, the rules are unpredictable, its purpose is suspect, its 
its effects disintegrated. A constant reader could hardly get any other picture of the world than that it is ruled by a benign lunatic who amuses himself by sending fragments of advice to earthlings who are, at best, vague about their moral direction. In short, I am saying that the semantic environment of religion has legitimate social and psychological purposes and appropriate rules of discourse which are subverted in the most bizarre way by astrological language. It may be that there are purposes for this kind of talk which I have not been able to discern, and I am more than willing to entertain the possibility that astrological talk serves therapeutic or even social ends of some significance, perhaps. But as science, it is stupid. As religion, it is crazy. Oftentimes, in public matters, the question of what sort of semantic environment one is confronted with must be settled, as in the instance of Watergate. One might say that the whole issue of Watergate centered around the questions, how shall we talk to each other about the events that took place? In other words, into what semantic environment should we place matters? Mr. Nixon, Mr. Ehrlichman, and others of their team insisted on using the language of patriotism, and by doing so, tried to give a particular direction to our attitudes toward their motives. They did what they did, they said, to protect national security, to protect the CIA, to prevent political disruptions, and so on. This is the semantic environment from which Nixon produced the memorable remark that members of his campaign organization were guilty members of an excess of zeal. We may call a patriot overzealous, but we would not use the term for a thief who, let us say, steals more than he needs to. Of course, that was an easy point to be made by Senators Irvin, Baker, and Weicker, who insisted on using the language of law, and by doing so, were attempting to rule out of order any and all words that compromise the language of patriotism. Thus, the senators asked, was perjury committed? Who bribed whom? Who was behind the break-in? And so on. You do not need to ask questions about patriots. You ask such questions about crooks. What is the difference between a patriot and a crook? This is sometimes a difficult question to answer, but in Watergate, the answer came easily. The tapes decided the issue, not because Nixon used dirty words, which is certainly forgivable to patriots under stress, but because the tapes revealed that in the privacy of the Oval Office, Nixon and other patriots used the language of law and crimes to explain themselves, not because Nixon used dirty words, which is certainly forgivable to patriots under stress, but because the tapes revealed that in the privacy of the Oval Office, Nixon and other patriots used the language of law and crime to explain to themselves what they were doing. If you ask how much money can be laundered and how much it will take to buy someone's silence, you are obviously speaking from a point of view which excludes patriotic sentiment. In other words, the language of each social structure expresses human purpose through its tone, its vocabulary, its point of view, its metaphors, its level of abstraction. Watergate was a clash of Lieutenant Callie and, incidentally, that of Adolf Eichmann. The issue raised with both Galley and Eichmann was which semantic environment shall prevail, the military situation or the ethical situation. The phrase obeying orders and the phrase individual responsibility do not occupy the same semantic environment, and I doubt if they can ever be made to. Two semantic environments usually will not coexist healthfully in the same space-time. There are some, of course, that can, for a while, because they look something like each other, as, let us say, a policeman looks a little bit like a soldier. But if you will look carefully enough, you will see that each has its own unique forms, 
and its special jurisdictions and its particular functions, we must attend to these differences and respect them, for if we call upon the wrong one, our thoughts become addled and our purpose is confounded. We begin to talk stupid or crazy. Consider a merchant at Christmas time places a sign on the window of his shop. It reads, Buy for the sake of Christ. What's the problem? Christ himself gave the answer. Render unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's and unto God the things which be God. In other words, there is nothing wrong with commerce, but there is a special language in which it must be conducted, and that language nowhere touches upon the language of religion. They are different spheres of human enterprise and motivation, and in mixing them, we weaken both. A proposal is put forward by a feminist group, the purpose of which is to get husbands and wives to share equally in household chores. The purpose involves having each partner sign a contract which specifies who would do what and on which days. The question is, can the language of law solve a problem of this sort? It is true enough that marriage itself is a legal contract, but its stipulations are invoked only at the point where the marriage is in the process of being dissolved. Can anyone plausibly imagine an overburdened wife having failed to persuade her husband that she needs his help, pulling out a contract form from the bureau drawer and insisting he live up to his terms on pain of legal sanctions? This is not marriage. It is the end of marriage. The language of law is a great and useful instrument, but it is designed for the use of strangers, not lovers. Another example. In many communities around the country, the quality of education is being measured by the scores children achieve on standardized tests. Education thus falls under the jurisdiction of the language of statistics, and it is a fact that many schools are now designing their programs almost solely for the purpose of increasing their students' mean test scores. Here, it is slightly unfair for me to repeat the joke about the statistician who drowned while trying to wade across a river with an average depth of two feet. The fault is not with statisticians, whose special language is a remarkably useful instrument for uncovering abstract facts. The fault is with those educators who have fallen under its spell and have allowed their purposes to be subverted by the seductions of precise measurement. What all these examples are leading to is the beginning outline of a standard for the judgment of talk. The argument goes like this. One of the fundamental principles of life is differentiation. It is differentiation, the contrast between one thing and another, that produces the energy for growth and change. Where there is no differentiation of purpose, structure, rule, function, you have in natural and social systems entropy, decay, uselessness, and death. Differentiation among social systems is codified and preserved, indeed made visible, through language. When language becomes undifferentiated, Human situations disintegrate. Science becomes indistinguishable from religion, which becomes indistinguishable from commerce, which becomes indistinguishable from law, and so on. If each of them serves the same function, then none of them serves any function. When such a process is occurring, an appropriate word for it is pollution. And I am here using that word in almost the same sense as it is used in natural ecology. To pollute a river means to introduce into it elements that cannot be absorbed, elements that do not fit, elements that have no function in the life system of that river, and that is how you pollute a semantic environment. You introduce a language whose tone or point of view or vocabulary has no function in the meaning of that environment. Of course, 
any environment, natural or semantic, can tolerate a certain amount of unassimilable matter, i.e. garbage, I do not wish to say that the opposite of a polluted semantic environment is a pure semantic environment, whatever such a phrase might mean, but if you go beyond a certain point in introducing elements that do not belong, an environment becomes toxic. In the case of a semantic environment, it becomes useless for the expression of certain human relationships and purposes. And so, we have in the concept of a semantic environment our first criterion for identifying stupid or crazy talk. Stupid talk is talk that does not know what environment it is in. It is talk that comes from a world of human activity other than that which the situation calls for. Crazy talk is a talk that creates and sustains an irrational environment, a situation that is not called for at all. But that's just the beginning, the very beginning context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade. In for the book club, trying to figure out how to use my highlighter for the PDF. I actually have the hard copy book of this text, but since I scanned it uh, for our narrator Mel and some of our listeners, I am using the scanned copy. This is Neil Postman's Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk, How We Defeat Ourselves by the Way We Talk, and What to Do about it. Woo! I am so thankful we are done with Friends Fanon. I thought while we were reading this that this is a bit technical. I'm sure that a lot of people uh, are probably not interested in hearing a white man suspected racist talk in depth about language. But man, in my view, for folks who are students of Mr. Fuller, uh, who have read through his word guide and the way that he talks about words and the importance of words and really being scientific uh, with regards to inspecting definitions and the way that we use words. Wow. There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot that can be applied, particularly I will hush. I will hush right there. Uh, folks would like to participate, the number to dial 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640, the code 564 Four, three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, if you want to join in, but you do not want to use your phone, you can use the free Vope line. It is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny t i n y dot c c forward slash one race and that is the number one address again tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one when you enter that address look on the left side of the page you'll see the link for the free vote line click it it will open a small window on your screen first line it is a drop down menu select the number i just gave out which again is 
zero. Next line, it will ask for the code. That code again, five, six, four, nine, four, three. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in a real name, nickname. You can press random keys, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that information entered, Click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live broadcast. You should be able to hear us live. Same procedure if you would like to participate. You'll see a dial pad on your screen. Press star 61. I'll see your hand on the switchboard and we will add you to the line. I'm going to post the link on my Facebook page and I will tweet it. It is a Dropbox folder that has the entire book scanned. If you would like a hard copy to follow along, uh, it might take a chapter or two just for uh, Postman to kind of lay out, you know, what he's doing in the book, but he gives a lot of great illustrations that woo, looking forward to. But go into the phone, see if folks have any comments from the first uh, section of text. If you have a hand up, uh, line should be open. Feel free to chime in. Let's see. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, interesting book. Uh, I don't have the book, but uh, I'll be looking for the link uh, once you post it, uh, trying to follow along. So I took a couple of notes here, and, and I, I do agree that words are very scientific, and this seems like very interesting because, uh, you know, the old adage, words, you know, are power. But um, – in the forward, when he said cars don't make left turns, people do, I kind of cringed a little bit because that's a phrase that's been used uh, lately with the Las Vegas gun shooting and the NRA's, uh, you know, response to it of uh, guns don't kill, people do. So uh, more of a political type of uh, usage uh, for uh, you know, hope, upholding the Second Amendment uh, for them. Um, when he uh, when uh, he talked about Orwell and said that short words uh, short words uh, makes you recognize. You know, using short words in the sentence makes you recognize uh, that you you know I guess talk stupid. Uh, I kind of scratch my head on that as well uh, with or you know with with when you quoted Orwell on it because uh, I believe that if you use you know shorter and clearer words uh, or simpler words uh, it'll prevent you from you know maybe talking stupid well not prevent you but you know assure you that you won't talk stupid if you use simpler words um, in the uh, I guess uh, in the uh, when he was using an example of uh, not speaking towards your environment. I guess it was the example of uh, using the phrase, uh, bless me, Father, for I have sinned in the confession. Uh, or, you know, like when you, he was using it in the, as an example of, you know, if you're using somewhere else, like on an elevator, you know, that sounds kind of crazy or stupid. Um, I thought about what racists do when you talk about, you know, unarmed black, uh, black men getting shot by police. And the first response I get from them is, well, what about black on black violence? Nothing to do with the, the topic at hand. So I know racists use that type of talk um, for that. Uh, religious talk uh, is also used by racists. Uh, when 
when they talk about, you know, issues in the black community, you know, the first thing they use is moral values and fatherlessness and, you know, all this other stuff, but never talk about uh, the system of white supremacy that black folks in this country are set up in. Uh, and also the patriotism talk uh, that's recently uh, been a, a very uh, big thing in regards to the flag uh, when uh, the NFL players or, you know, any pro athlete kneels for the national anthem. You know, you hear President Trump and you know, his supporters talk about you're disrespecting the flag. So uh, that's a popular patriotism talk that's going on right now, uh, especially by racists. Um, that is, uh, that's all the notes I have right now. I mean, my life. Appreciate that. I think with, when he was talking about Orwell, when he gave the suggestion, Orwell, uh, suggested, uh, to use smaller words as opposed to longer words, using everyday words, as opposed to scientific words. This is on, uh, in my book, it's on page six. Uh, I think Postman said that that is probably a good suggestion uh, in terms of writing efficiently or using words in an efficient manner. But that in and of itself uh, is not enough to stop uh, stupid talk or crazy talk. I think that was the point that that he was making, Uh, because I I also think that is a a good rule in terms of uh, using words uh, to just use words that effectively communicate your point as opposed to, to trying to find these obscure uh, terms and what have you. Uh, but even still, that might not stop you from <laughs> talk, saying something that's wild or as he will define a stupid talk, crazy talk in the text. Uh, the other folks, uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary you want to share, line should be open. Proceed. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so I would, this is Mel, the narrator. I would like to apologize for this week's reading. I don't, it might, it's, I don't think it's in the category of stupid talk, but I'm noticing I was making at least two mistakes per page, but this is not about me. But next week I will try to sound a little bit less sassy while reading and speak slower and less emotive and, oh God. Um, uh So I think when he's talking about the semantic environment, it just occurred to me that I think white supremacists, one of their goals in talking to non-white people is to confuse you about the semantic environment. Um, You think you're talking in a joking situation and suddenly nothing is funny, or you think you're in a serious situation and then a cop will start laughing with you. And I was thinking of that fact that they seem to almost love doing this in movies pretty often where they'll use like a religious quote or, or something about generosity. I'm thinking there will be blood. Um, and then something incredibly violent happens. It seems like they relish in confusing you about the environment you're supposed to be speaking in. <clears throat> um, and I, I know that when they were talking about how some people in the forward speak stupid on purpose to avoid being, I guess, thought of as very smart, that it's a technique sometimes that people use. And I know that's been at least something that I've used in interactions with white people um, in an attempt to not have as much violence put upon me at that moment. Um, Like if I'm talking to a law enforcement officer and if I happen to know a little bit about what's going on, I'll just kind of pretend that I don't because if you say you know something about it, like answering some of their questions the way they want you to, it's almost like it's a trap. I know this something words and 
get incredibly important with enforcement officers, but sometimes you just cannot be honest because they'll they'll kind of ask you an uh, an instigating question. That's the only way to put it. Um, let's see. Uh, I think that the the astrologer example that he uses when he's talking about whether or not the astrologer is using uh, whether the astrologer is using I think scientific talk versus religious talk. I feel like the example of religion could actually not match what the, well, it, it actually might match what the astrologer is doing. He said that the astrologer is not speaking religiously because I think it wasn't uplifting or it didn't seem thought provoking or no, not thought provoking, but it didn't seem to open your mind or allow for any connectedness between the person saying it and the person listening. But I think if crazy talk, if you are a white supremacist and your religion is crazy talk or stupid talk, then I think then the astrologer would be acting in their religion if they were a white supremacist. Um, but, which I guess maybe I'm just thinking about his definition of religion being maybe not one that I would think is in line with the code. Um, and finally, I'm hoping that this book will, uh, I'm wondering if he's going to talk about, um, or if we're going to get anywhere near the subject of Ebonics, and I guess whether or not an environment will determine whether or not you're speaking correctly um, versus, I guess, an empirical or unilateral correct speech. Like if someone is in a certain type of neighborhood or among a certain type of people, and I know we've all had this before where someone will start speaking a different way around you. Are they doing the correct thing or the incorrect thing? But I, I guess I could probably give a better example. I'm trying to think of one. Um, if I can think of one, I will bring it up in the next section. Also, was it just me whose quality of audio messed up on page 15? I'm so sorry to keep bringing this up, but uh, that was it. I'm not sure if it was page 15 or not. I think there might have been one point where it seemed like it might have been a brief hiccup, but I'm not sure if it was page 15 exactly. Right on. Striving for improvement, Armel. Thank you, thank you for doing the, the narration. Much obliged. I know that is a difficult task uh, doing the audio work. Uh, did, let's see, the other folks who dialed in, Mr. Demi Ford, did you have commentary uh, you wanted to add, sir? Are you with us, Mr. Demery Four, or are you just listening? Perhaps he's just uh, listening in. Uh, other folks, if you have commentary, feel free. Star six, uh, star six one. If you have, uh, if you have commentary, uh, did you, did you have commentary you want to add in, Mr. Demery Four? Yes, Rabbi here. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, greetings, Gus, uh, other calls and listeners. I have to admit, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, I don't have the text right now, and uh, I really didn't uh, listen in on the, the uh, first recording, uh, but I did uh, get the uh, PDF <clears throat> that you had and actually uh, did read the uh, foreword and uh, the definition stupid talk and crazy talk and I did have some commentary regarding the examples but I'm not in a environment where 
you know, I can, uh, can you hear me clearly just without the distraction in the background? Oh yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a very mild, uh, sound in the background and we can hear you. We can hear you fine. Oh, okay. <clears throat> because at first I was thinking about the example, uh, Jed Hoover, when he was hit from the rear, um, and the driver was turning left, and then he didn't want his drivers to turn left. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I I wanted to really, you know, get down into this, but that's got to be an example of. Uh, uh, crazy, well, stupid. That's got to be stupid. <laughs> you know, then he didn't want his driver to turn left. So if he's leaving the FBI office, which is downtown D.C., going to his favorite restaurant, he'd have to go, you know, make all these lights, you know, in order to get to the restaurant. You know, which that's stupid. <clears throat> and then if you think about uh, mediocrity, and then if you think about brain surgery and maybe a heart surgery, if you want them to be uh, medi- mediocrity, you know, then you would bring into context the facts that uh, you would have to pay attention to the way that you're speaking if. You're using phrases that are stupid, or if you're using uh, commentary or phrases that are crazy. But then again, uh, some of these phrases are acceptable. And so, uh, what can we really say at this point about either stupid or crazy talk? So, I'm just going to hang in there. I got my book coming in and uh, I had to go as far in Baltimore to get a copy. And then I had to end up paying almost $50. Amazon is sending me a copy. So next week I'll be able to give more uh, insight, but um, I'll continue to listen and learn. Thanks for taking call, Gus. Uh, I encourage every other calls and listeners to uh, participate. Much I'm my line. Appreciate that, Mr. Demery for wow, that is they are definitely price gouging. This book is out of print. I think that's why uh they can charge so much on Amazon and why you might have to trek uh we're talking about going all the way up to Baltimore uh to get a copy of the text. Uh not Mr. some of Mr. Postman's other books uh are still in print and are much easier to obtain, but this one is not. Uh Emmy? Uh, if you had commentary, you should be with us as well. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings. Um, I I struggled really hard to um, find this text. Um, I had to look so far as the Library of Congress, and they weren't going to let me actually check it out, and I was going to scan it and try to read it. But um, 
I took a couple of notes. I missed, I was at work, so I missed like a chunk of the middle. I did some of my own reading and then I came in right at the end. So there's probably a, a lot I'd like to say about those 10 to 12 pages that I missed. But um, one thing that I read from, I think I've made it to like around the Ford where I took this note, um, or I made it through the Ford. Um, that reality is not relative. This is a note that I wrote, that reality is not relative and that there are standards for judging. And I felt that this was profound. Um, I feel like it, I didn't mark in this text because it's not my book, but um, I feel like that's very profound because I've had conversations and I don't know what philosopher or scientist said that that reality is relative and everyone has taken that on as though that is fact. And I disagree. I don't think that reality is relative. I guess if people were talking about it on an individual basis, then sure. But there has to be a collective global reality. And I was making that argument there. And so I feel that the author, um, like he, he's saying that there are standards with which to judge if something is real or not. And I think that that just um, would like to go into it some more. But I, I'd like to find the exact quote um, so that other people could know exactly what I'm referring to. So if you give me a second, I will look for that. But um, he talks about, in the forward at least, that language structures the way that we see. And I, these are just things that I think are profound. Um, and I agree. And I used to think about it more so uh, when it comes to the talk that you have with yourself and how that can either um, absolutely open up your world into what you think is possible for yourself or really close you off. Um, and sometimes when we're not really paying attention to the way that we talk to ourselves, um, we're not really aware that, and he even said it, that our favorite sentences betray our, our best interests. So some of the things that we say um, hinder what we can actually do. And, you know, I, I just the connection between what we think and what we say, having much, having a very great impact on what we do and who we become. And so I'm just very excited to explore that more. Um, and then he talks about how the changes, how if we change the way that we speak and can lead to a change in our point of view. And when I think about that within the context of white supremacy and what that can mean for non-white people, I have experienced that for myself. Um, and it's particularly with, say, uh, using the term victim of white supremacy, actually having a definition for racism, white supremacy, that was something that really changed my life. It was life-changing to really have a definition for racism, white supremacy. It was a paradigm shift, and I felt it, and I feel it now. Um, even referring, like, being being able to be more precise and not say, like, black and all, or African or all this, not to say that these terms may not have a place, but non-white, and the importance and the impact of the term non-white, because it really shapes, from my, for at least me, the way that I'm able to understand what's happening, where I'm at, what time it is, and what's going on. Um, and then um, I, th I also thought it was very interesting that over 50%, I I'm, I'm, don't know the exact percent, but over 50% of the verbs that we have are some form of to be. Um, what that means, I don't really know. I just thought that that was really cool um, and just something to think about. And also, um, I, I really, really thought it was important, too, when he says 
he provides the example of someone says he is stupid. And then by saying is that that's like, there's a, like by saying is, it's meaning that like it's innate, it's within that person that that person is, is stupid instead of just performing or doing stupidity or doing stupid. And when I come back away from that, from being like, okay, I'm talking about myself, but like on the global scale and then within the context of white supremacy, all of the things that people are saying that we are or something like that, like if, if that's innate and how that's been propagated and spread around the world to where everyone thinks that they they have all these preconceptions based off of what people say we are. And, and then if I even move beyond that and start to think about what white is and how that has, how it shapes my mind and conceptualizing white people and what white is and why it's so difficult and sometimes to, to really, why it was difficult, you know, to see and then to hold on to what I'm seeing and not regress back into the programming of, you know, everything. I might not be as concise as I'm trying to be, but those are just a couple of the things that I thought was profound um, and that I'm excited about. So um, if I will look for that other quote just because talking about reality, maybe I misread it, but um, yeah, it, it meant something to me earlier. So thank you all for listening. And Mel, thank you for doing the narration. You sound great. Thanks. Grand, grand. Uh, if other folks uh, have commentary they want to share, star six one, and uh, we will get you on the line as well. Uh, some of the things that stood out as I was reading the text, actually going back to one of the first callers who shared today, where he was saying uh, that he cringed when he heard when he was the postman was giving the example about J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI and him saying they had, they had this car accident and he prohibited left-hand turns uh, because it, the vehicle, made a turn and Postman was saying that it, the vehicle, doesn't make left turns. Uh, drivers make left turns. And he said he cringed because he hears that with the gun lobby groups. And the reason that that rhetoric has been invoked so stringently, so predictably for decades now is because it is a statement of fact uh, they they are using it because that's irrefutable. The gun does not go out and shoot anyone. A person picks up that gun and uses it as a tool. That is a fact. That's exactly what he's talking about in this text uh, in terms of how people are able to use language. Uh, it is not crazy talk. It is not stupid talk. It is correct. <laughs> They're using a statement of fact for uh, political means. When Hoover says it, the vehicle made a left turn, uh, that is false. Uh, that is what he would classify, I think, as uh, at minimum stupid talk, uh, because that, I mean, that's just, you know, nonsense. Uh, but just paying attention to the way that uh, words are used uh, both in incorrectly and how racists, in my opinion, can very skillfully use words in that manner. Just a lot of the things that he pointed out uh, in the early and we're in the very early portion. We've we've really only read like the introduction and the first chapter. We really haven't even got into a lot of the meat of the text. Uh, but when he talked and this is right in the beginning of chapter one, the semantic environment, when he talks about how the way we think i can just read what he says uh as but this much we can say the main stuff of the mind is sentences minding and language are for all practical purposes one and the same when we are thinking we are mostly arranging sentences in our heads when we are thinking stupid 
We are arranging stupid sentences. I thought that was very important because I think there is a lot of that, particularly later on in the chapter when he when he gets to uh, pollution and talking about thinking about having an environment that is polluted, having a polluted semantic environment. I thought that was very important. I think racists, they do a lot to pollute our thinking so that we are thinking stupid and arranging stupid sentences. Uh, they have given us incorrect terms uh, to think uh, about racism. Uh, and as Mr. Fuller says, when you don't understand that, that throws everything else off. And then they do a lot of other things in terms of just being very confusing with language. Again, master deceivers. So they make it very easy. Uh, and in fact, they groom us to think in a stupid manner and to talk in a stupid manner, encourage us uh, in that direction. Uh, let's see. Even continuing, because I thought this was pretty, pretty significant. I would go so far as to say that the entire subject matter of stupidity is encompassed by the study of our ways of talking. Even when we do nonverbal stupid things like smoking a cigarette, we have preceded the act by talking to ourselves in such a way to make it appear reasonable. One might say that stupid talk is the generative act from which all the higher stupidities flow. The word in a word brings forth the act. I thought that was at least something to uh, consider and uh, in, in really placing a lot of emphasis on just speaking, using words in a reckless, careless manner, uh, that that can have a big impact on behaving, acting in a reckless careless way uh just i think something to think about I, I know at minimum i think mr fuller might encourage thinking uh, about that something to consider um i also thought that when he was talking about it that uh i think what emmy said i'm trying to find the sentence as well where he says that uh this is something that can be studied uh in terms of incorrect use of language uh that this is not something that's just uh, subjective or whatever the case that this is something that you can actually study and pick out. I also thought it was really important when he talked about the portion where he couldn't really tell you what correct or quality use of words was, but you could point out bad use and incorrect use uh, in language. And he compared it to doctors that they could not really identify health or lawyers. They could not identify justice. And I certainly uh, thought of Mr. Fuller there, who has, I think, often talked about there is no legally established definition for justice, which might go to the point of why, you know, lawyers do not talk about or conceptualize justice. They just go to injustice. They can pick that out. Uh, and even saying that justice might be the absence of injustice no one being mistreated. Uh, but I thought that was very interesting. But yeah, I need to get that exact sentence. And for me, even though I have the scanned copy, it's different. I'm accustomed to having the ebook version. So you can be cool and just go through and do a word search and all that. Since I just have the scanned copy, it's basically like having a hard copy book just on my computer. So I don't have all the cool gadgetry I normally do. Uh, some of the other uh, things that I picked out in the chapter later on, when he talks about the semantic environment, being that if you are in church, you have specific language, specific words that are used for that environment uh, that are not used. If you're at the football game or the salon, right, you have specific words that are used there and that one way confusion can be brought about is using language for the football stadium at the church, right? Racists do that 
all the time. I think uh, Mel pointed that out. They do this on a regular basis. And in fact, they will do that to enforce racism, white supremacy on a regular basis. That's one of the reasons why uh, I reject the word fair. Uh, because they will pull that word when we're supposed to be talking about justice, where now justice or correct treatment is being conflated with white. They will do that sort of thing on a regular basis, but they uh, will use terms. Uh, for, I think religion is one that they will use on a regular basis. They will use religious terms and imagery in environments that are not connected to religion at all uh, to try to influence or persuade your behavior, uh, how we should, you know, function and where they do this sort of thing on a regular basis, primarily with racism, white supremacy. I think even uh, the language around criminality, uh, I think that's one consistently where they will use criminal language when talking about black children, even though these are not hardened Charles Manson criminals, they'll use criminal language when talking about black children, the absence of criminal language, even when they're talking about the likes of Dylan Storm Roof, uh, just that's something to pick out. They masters at this sort of thing. That's even something else I would point out as we're reading this book, Neil Postman, white man, suspected racist. There are a lot of books uh, about language, the use of language, refining the use of language and writing all of the books that I'm aware of and that listeners have recommended are written by white people. Just something to think about if people know of books that are talking about language, the use of language, uh, that would be grand. Point that out. Uh, I am not. Just something pointing out as we go, other than Mr. Fuller. Um, any other notes? I think there were a few other things that, that did stick out, and I'm still going to get the session that Emmy was talking about, unless she's found it already. Uh, while I'm doing that, I'll pause. Other folks who, who dialed in, uh, if you have a hand up, other folks have commentary? Some other folks are other folks are good. We didn't miss anyone with commentary. Grant, we have a the second audio segment is a little bit longer. Some of these chapters are like I said, we just started, so the forward is kind of short. And we only did chapter one. Chapter two and chapter three are a little bit longer, where he goes into more detail. Uh, so. Uh, if you have commentary, we'll take about five more minutes to give folks an opportunity. If nobody has anything, we'll go ahead and get started. And that way we'll have ample opportunity once we finish with the next two chapters, which are a little bit larger. And I did post the links for the entire book. I put it on my Facebook page, the cows group. I tweeted it. So if you want a hard copy of the text to follow along as we are reading, even if you want a hard copy to follow on today, uh, you can get the link and you can read it, you know, right online, mobile device, whatever you have. Uh, checking at my notes really quick here. Again, that, that uh, pollution, I thought that concept was really important. Let's see. Well, as we get to the second text, I'm gonna make sure I go back to uh, find Emmy's portion. I, I assume she didn't find it yet. She would have spoken up the section uh, where he was talking about that language can, incorrect language can be identified, that it can be picked out uh, and we can do something about that. I thought that was important as well. So I will pick that out as we go. Uh, did we have any, any other commentary folks wanted to make sure they got in before we get to the second audio segment? Folks content? I will assume folks, oh, 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 uh, the caller, 
Oh, this is uh, Mel dialing back with us. Did you have additional commentary, Mel? Or perhaps not. I found it, guys. Oh, okay. Great, great, great. Um, it's in the forward on page, I think that's 13. Mm-hmm. For me, it's 13 in the forward. And it says, um, he says, what are the standards which gives us the authority to instruct him? Who is to say which of us seeing the matter correctly? You'll be pleased to know that there are standards by which to judge these matter, these matters. And if I have done this book right, these will be visible to you before long. Are we thinking about the same thing? I believe so. Okay, because that's what I, yes, then mm-hmm. there it is. Thank you. Yeah, thought that was important as well. I, I think folks who've heard me on the cows over the years have heard me irked about that uh, many, many times. I think out here in Seattle, the popular phrasing is that's your truth, a statement, a phrase which I loathe. Everything is relatives, uh, everything is relative, and everybody has their own subjective. Uh, view some things certainly are subjective uh, whether you like you know ketchup or whether you like mustard or whatever the case is going to be but some things are not uh, and we were talking about racism white supremacy many things this is not relative this is uh, and that's something that i've found frequently in discussions on uh, racism white supremacy that sort of everything is you know subjective uh, type position uh, the person Four seven, four seven five seven. Did you have additional commentary? Four seven five seven. Sorry, it's me again. Uh, my headset wasn't working. Oh, I, um, I had one comment, but it might be redundant. Um, that I'm wondering uh, specifically with the quote that Emmy and you found um, that she had just read. I'm wondering, is the person who decides the usage of correct language? I know. I feel like I've heard Neely Fuller say that if you can be understood. Um, then it, well, no, I'm not going to misquote him, but I feel like I've heard someone say, if you can be understood, then how you spoke was the correct way to speak to that person or in that situation. So when he says something like, there is a, there's a standard by which you can judge whether or not something was said correctly, and specifically the very specific example of Hoover, I'm wondering, and maybe this is just an English speaker uh, thing, um, but who is the person is the person we're talking about a white person who can or white supremacist specifically who can decide whether or not the usage of language was correctly i'm just thinking at the end of the day i could speak as correctly as i want to but i'm wondering if i'm the wrong color to be speaking and saying whatever i'm saying um i'm going to keep that in the back of my mind in this book but i am learning a lot um and that was it Hmm. interesting i think the there's a portion earlier in the text where he says that just being making like superficial critiques of language in terms of well you didn't use the wrong part of speech or you didn't pronounce that word correctly uh that that's not the issue right i think that's something that they is done to black people to non-white people on a regular uh basis that i think closer to what you're saying if you know the person can be understood then you know there's not a real problem uh, there with what's being said. And I think uh, he's talking about specifically there are a lot of times things not being articulated in a, way, in a manner where one can easily comprehend what's being said. Uh, or when he's talking about crazy talk, the things that are being said maybe should not be said or should not be done. Racist speech a lot of time, that's one that he identifies as crazy talk. But we can 
pay attention to that as we go. Is this is this white people being able to again have the racist authority uh, to dictate who is speaking correctly or what is correct uh, correct speech? Uh, also, real quickly, I did want to get in. This is on page seventeen, uh, the second paragraph. He says, in other words, the language of each social structure expresses human purpose through its tone, its vocabulary, its point of view, its metaphors, its level of abstraction. I think white supremacy is expressed at all of those levels uh, throughout the way that whites use. That's why you have just looking at the way that white is used, the way that fair is used, the way that black is used. White supremacy is expressed in all of those different ways, regardless of the environment, the way that whites are using language. That's something that is is omnipresent. I also thought on page when he talks about making language undifferentiated, uh, that that is a part of generating confusion. Man, I remembered Mr. Fuller, he was on the program, the same broadcast with Cleo Monago, and he said that racists, they want to remove, he was talking about using the metaphor as if you were on a highway, and they just come and take all the lines off the road. Now it's confusing to figure out, you know, which way is headed which, uh, because you don't have any lines on the road. They are great that undifferentiation of language. They are great at that so that you have more and more confusion about what exactly are we talking about? What is this related to? Is this related? I mean, just they are fabulous uh, at that sort of thing on a regular basis. I have to give out uh, some specific examples uh, as we go. Uh, Was there anything else I want to make sure? Got in... Think I will pause there. Uh, any any other commentary, folks? Want to make sure they get in before we proceed. Grant, if you have additional comments, write them down, and we should have ample time since we're getting started uh, before the program concludes. If you have uh, comments you want to add, so we're starting. This is chapter two, uh, purposes. Uh, for me, it's page 21. Again, I post the link. It's a folder and it has the entire book. I'm not sure where chapter two is. I guess it would be pretty early in the file. I think it's like maybe six, seven files total in the folder. But we're on chapter two purposes. You can go to Facebook uh, or my Twitter at Until Justice and you can download the entire book if you need it. And you can follow along. Context of white supremacy. This is Neil Postman's Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk, How We Defeat Ourselves by the Way We Talk and what to do about it. Audio segment number two. Purposes. If the purpose of every semantic environment were singular and unambiguous, then among several benefits that would accrue to the world is that the book before you would be unnecessary. Of somewhat more importance is that the flow of stupid or crazy talk in our lives would be a well-channeled trickle instead of a torrent. And of still more importance is that life would be unbearably dull, resembling in its simplicity and clarity a society of horseshoe crabs. Whatever impression I may have recently given, for example in the last chapter, the fact is that every semantic environment is generated by and organized around not one purpose but several. In fact, one of the principal reasons why people are forever quarreling about the quality and relevance of their remarks is that semantic environments are multi-purposed, In approaching these purposes, we must be exceedingly cautious, for we are moving into a territory that has confounded many intellectual adventurers, some of whom found themselves in a swamp and have never been heard from again. 
What are the purposes of such situations as go by the names religion, war, politics, commerce, education, sports, science, law? For every purpose I will name, you will name two, and the list grows endlessly, especially if we take recourse to assumptions of psychoanalysis. Why do we have wars? I have been told that wars are contrived so that old men, who do not have to fight them, can have access to young women. Politics, I have read recently, is only an outlet for the male bonding instinct, and education to keep children off the labor market. Religion, of course, is the opiate of the people. Where do we go from here? It's a puzzlement, and yet the question must be addressed. If we cannot get at the purpose of a human situation in some reasonable way, then we cannot make any useful qualitative statements about language. Therefore, some attempt must be made to clarify the issue, and in the next several pages I will try it, although not by taking the hard route. I shall, so to speak, fly over the swamp rather than wade into it. I must tell you, then, that I will not try here to catalogue the purposes of particular semantic environments. Instead, I want to offer a set of principles and questions that can be used in sorting out the complexities and confusions of purpose. As you have gathered by now, I am trying to establish preeminently that there can be no meaningful concept of either good or bad language without respect to purpose. It seems to you that I have already said this several times, most recently about five sentences back. I plead guilty with an explanation. I labor the point because most books on language neglect it entirely or at least try to hide it. From Fowler to Orwell to Korzybski to Chase to Edwin Newman, the list is legion. Standards, rules, and guidelines for good talk have been put forward as if they applied to all human situations, when in fact they apply to very few. Anything that depersonalizes is an enemy of language, Newman writes in his popular book Strictly Speaking. But this is nonsense. The language of science depersonalizes, and that is exactly what it needs to do in order to serve its purpose. The first law of thermodynamics, for example, applies to Edwin Newman only in the most abstract way. It dehumanizes him, but it is not therefore an enemy of anything. Kozhybsky, on the other hand, insisted that the language of science alone is the language of sanity. But sanity has many more forms of expression that can be encompassed in a single semantic environment. The language of prayer is not scientific, but only in the most impoverished conception of the human enterprise can it be called insane. The line I am taking here is that while the language of science, for example, has purposes that go far beyond making rockets or biochemical discoveries, such purposes can in no sense be regarded as the highest goal of human wisdom. Objective, detached, unambiguous, public and tentative language is good in the context of a situation called science. But such language is decidedly bad in a number of other situations, whose purposes differ from those of science, for example in the process of love-making or praying, where language in order to be good must be emotional, private, subjective, and categorical. Good talk, I will continue to insist throughout, is talk that does what it's supposed to do in a particular situation, assuming that the purpose of that situation is to serve rational and humane needs. Bad talk is talk that doesn't. When I accuse astrologers of crazy talk, my assertion is based on my answers to a series of questions including what are the purposes of religious language, and to what extent does this language contradict such purposes. My answers are, of course, debatable, but they proceed from an assessment of specific purposes and not from some generalized notion of what is or is not an enemy of language. Language, in fact, has no enemies, or friends for that matter. 
but we might say that language can be one's enemy if one tries to achieve purposes with words that are not designed to serve them. Any book about language is, therefore, a book about human purposes, and because human purposes are so difficult to understand and articulate, the most helpful thing I can do is to develop some distinctions. The first is simple enough. There is a difference between the purposes of any individuals in a social situation and the purposes of the situation itself. Every semantic environment is an abstraction, an idea if you will, and therefore has an existence independent of individuals who make use of it. In other words, a semantic environment does not wholly belong to individuals. It is a product of our collective imagination. It belongs largely to tradition and is fashioned from society's experience of what is useful conduct. Here is a simple example from a common enough social semantic environment. Two people who are acquainted with each other pass on the street. The first says, Hi, how you been? The second says, Fine, yourself? The first, Pretty good, see you around. The second, Right, see ya. Now, if I tell you that these two people dislike each other intensely, you will begin to see what I mean. It is not what they wish to say that matters, it is what the situation wishes them to say. A million times before, on a million different streets, a million different people have had roughly similar conversations. Who knows when and where this tradition started? We can assume only that its basic purpose is to maintain a minimum level of civility. Indeed, require a minimum level of civility. Especially when individuals may be inclined to take the conversation in a more disagreeable direction. Moreover, it would be shallow to call this situation a mere convention. Its rules are a distillation of countless concrete transactions of the past, and the sturdiness of its purpose is shown by the infrequency of the occasions on which an individual will defy its constraints. And what do we normally say when someone does? Example. First person. Hi. How you been? Second person. It's none of your goddamn business, you hypocrite. The first person now thinks of the second person that there is something wrong with him. Why? Because in part, what we mean by something wrong is that someone has failed to grasp the purpose of a semantic environment, has confused his own requirements with those of the situation. With characteristic insight, Charles Schultz has drawn a well-known Peanuts cartoon, which gets to the heart of the matter. Charlie Brown is screaming at Lucy because she has made a bonehead play in their baseball game. You threw to the wrong base again, he bawls. There were runners on first and second, and you threw the ball to first. In a situation like that, you always throw to third or home. Lucy considers his advice for a moment, and then boldly replies, You're destroying my creativity. Maybe so. But whatever purposes are served through such creativity, they appear to work against the purposes of baseball. If you are in a baseball game, or any other systematized event, what you want must be expressed through what the situation demands. This is what is meant by social order, without which communication is quite impossible. And so Lucy will have to negotiate between her purposes and the games, which is what we all must do most of the time in each of the semantic environments we are in. And when we fail to do so, someone is going to think that we are talking either stupid or crazy, or maybe a little bit of both. But sometimes it gets awfully complicated, and who is talking stupid or crazy and who isn't is not so easy to say. In October 1973, Doreen Rappaport and her fiancé went to City Hall in New York to get a marriage license. There, they saw a sign which read, Women are not permitted to wear slacks. Men must wear a tie and a jacket. 
one or more rings must be exchanged. Miss Rappaport was outraged on two counts. She believed these regulations to be a violation of her civil rights, and they would clearly prevent her from wearing a green velvet pantsuit which she had purchased in Paris specifically for the marriage ceremony. Eventually, she instigated a lawsuit charging that the regulation banning slacks for brides and requiring coats and ties for bridegrooms was unconstitutional. Her anger was particularly directed at a man named Herman Katz, who was, at the time, the city clerk, and was responsible for setting up the regulations and enforcing them. Here are some of the things Mr. Katz had to say in his defense. Quote, the law prescribes the solemnization of marriages, and that word permits me to require appropriate dress. The question is whether the regulation is reasonable, and I don't believe I'm being arbitrary. Once I allow pants, everything is permissible. They could come in here with overalls. We've had hippies come in wearing practically nothing at all. Marriage is a very dignified matter. We are not dispensing supermarket produce where you are walking in, not mattering how you're dressed, plunk down $5 and pick up what you came for. Unquote. To this definition of the situation, Miss Rappaport contrasted hers. Quote, Since a wedding is such a personal event, tastes and attitudes surrounding it considerably vary from person to person. I feel that an adult has the right to make his or her decisions as to what clothing or jewelry is suitable for the occasion. Unquote. She also said, quote, I don't think most people in the 20th century agree with Herman Katz, unquote. This little dispute is intriguing, I think, because it is an example of a disagreement over the purposes of a particular social structure and, of course, the rules which best express those purposes. It is too early in this book to alienate any portion of my readers, the astrologers are gone by now, I'm sure, by applying such a term as stupid talk to either Miss Rappaport or Mr. Katz's comments, nor do I think it's much warranted. In fact, I will confess that, for all his Victorian intransigence, Mr. Cat seems to have at least one good argument in his favor. This is that Miss Rappaport could not possibly be more wrong in saying that a wedding is a personal event. If it were, then how would Mr. Katz get into the act in the first place? Why would Miss Rappaport and her fiancé seek a license? Why would they have to repeat certain words in a precise way before a public official? The answer, of course, is that marriage is not only not a personal event, although one's feelings about it might be, it is one of the most public rituals we have. Miss Rappaport and her fiancé could choose to live together without the sanction of the state, but they have chosen instead to go public. That is what a wedding is. The question as to whether this is a personal or a public event, then, would appear to veer in Mr. Cat's favor, and he tries to codify this judgment by relying on what he construes to be traditional practices. He thinks he lives in a society in which most people believe a wedding, as ritual confirmation of the society's values, is made solemn by a dress and a coat and tie. Miss Rappaport says no and heaps down upon him the hypothetical consensus of all people who live in the 20th century, most of whom, she says, disagree with poor old Herman Katz. Well, I don't know about that, and in fact find it difficult to imagine the sources from which she draws her evidence. I'm inclined to think that, if a vote were taken on the matter, Mr. Katz would win big in New York and New Jersey, where I have attended many weddings and have not yet seen a bride in a pantsuit. But I cannot speak about Pakistan or Cambodia, or for that matter, Connecticut. 
In any event, before going on to other matters, I want to remind you that the example is not put forward to show how differing perceptions of the purposes of a semantic environment will lead to differing judgments about the structure of its rules. To Mr. Katz, the purpose of a situation is to reaffirm cultural values through solemn public rituals. Its rules, therefore, call for a high degree of uniformity and respect for tradition and a corresponding degree of suppression of individual taste or preference. To Mrs. Rappaport, the purpose of the situation is to give personal expression to one's feelings of love and devotion. Therefore, it ought not to have any hard and fast rules, and certainly should allow for the widest possible expression of individual style. Mr. Katz is Charlie Brown, saying you're supposed to throw the ball to third. Miss Rappaport is Lucy, saying you're destroying my creativity. It remains for me to say, of such disagreements over purpose, and this one in particular, that they are rarely amenable to empirical solution. With a few exceptions, there is no way to test one view against another. For Mr. Katz and Miss Rappaport are not arguing over what the purposes of a wedding are, they are arguing over what the purpose of a wedding should be. And where you stand on such matters depends largely on your values, on your assessment of what is to be gained and what is to be lost. Another source of conflict over purposes derives from the fact that, frequently, there is a difference between the avowed purposes of a semantic environment and the purposes that may be inferred from the way in which the environment is structured. In other words, hypothetical or stated purposes may contrast sharply with actual or achieved purposes, and when people are unaware of this difference, the amount of stupid talk generated can be alarming. A school teacher I know once told me, sincerely I believe, that the main purpose of his lessons was to help youngsters become independent, analytical thinkers who know how to ask well-informed and relevant questions. But when I had the opportunity to observe his class in action, it was immediately obvious that its actualized purpose was something else. The teacher did all the question asking and, in fact, most of the answer giving. The situations was arranged so that the highest possible value was placed on conformity if not obedience. Here, I am not contending that conformity and obedience are in any sense worse purposes than diversity and independence. I am only saying that sometimes the latter purposes are avowed, but the former are achieved, or vice versa. There is, in short, a difference between what people say they want to do, or ought to do, and what they are actually doing. Consider, for instance, the following problem, which surfaced in 1975 during congressional debates over gun control. Congressman Robert Sykes of Florida spoke against gun control. Firearms, he said, are used by American citizens to protect their lives, families, and property. The need to possess them for self-defense today is as great, if not greater, than in earlier periods of our nation's history. Congressman Jonathan Bingham of the Bronx not only disagreed, he proposed legislation to restrict the manufacture of handguns. He then proceeded to say the following. I think we are literally out of our minds to allow 2.5 million new weapons to be manufactured each year for the sole purpose of killing people. Assuming that Congressman Bingham knows the conventional meaning of the word literally, it would appear that he thinks Congressman Sykes not only talks a little crazy, but is crazy and perhaps ought to be institutionalized in some place other than Congress. But, of course, Bingham probably doesn't mean literally to be taken literally, which is a common enough mistake and, in any case, beside the point. 
The point is that both congressmen agree here that one of the most important purposes of government is to protect its citizens against violence. Their argument is not at the abstract level of avowed purpose. Both of them could state the purpose in an Independence Day speech with roughly the same conviction. Where they disagree, and where the trouble starts, is over the concrete question, what sort of situation would afford the most protection for citizens? Sykes believes that law-abiding citizens are protected best in a society which makes handguns easily available to all. Bingham believes that such protection is best achieved in a society which tightly controls the availability of weapons. The dispute is, to a large extent, an empirical issue. If Bingham law is tried, we can find out through experience whether he is right or wrong. Of course, experience is often the definitive method by which we can distinguish between avowed and actualized purpose. Without recourse to reality testing, we cannot know if the purposes for which we have been organized in any situation are in fact being achieved. Coaches tell us that the purposes of athletics is to help people develop character and learn the value of sportsmanship. But witnessing even one Little League game tells you that its purpose is something else. Scientists tell us that one of the purposes of science is to help people develop an open mind and a wide, humane perspective. But as experience has shown, scientists are awfully quick to sell their services to the state at the cost of closing their minds and limiting their perspectives. It so happens I think that gun control is an excellent idea, but, as with Rappaport and Katz, I will let Sykes and Bingham shoot it out without my interference. My main purpose in using this example is to show that people can agree at one level of purpose, but collide, and bitterly, when matters are removed to a more concrete level. Another source of conflict, somewhat similar to the one just described, derives from the fact that the purpose served by a semantic environment is sometimes contradicted by the purposes of some subsystem which belongs to it. For example, as I argued earlier, religion has as its overriding purpose the creation of a sense of oneness, stressing the connectedness of all people. No major existing religion envisions God as a regional potentate. And yet, there is no shortage of examples of religious practices, rituals, and institutions motivated by the idea that people are morally different, that some will have access to eternity and some will not. All religious conflict stems from the idea of exclusiveness, while, paradoxically, all true religious sentiment promotes the idea of inclusiveness. The difference between the purposes of subsystems and the purposes of supersystems continuously creates paradoxes sometimes unresolvable ones. For example, consider the following tragic story, recounted in Gore Vidal's Esquire article, Passage to Egypt. Ahmed told me another story of military service involving friends. Each year in the army they have these maneuvers, he said. So these friends of mine are in maneuvers with guns in the desert and they have orders. Shoot to kill. Now, one of them was Ibrahim, my friend. Ibrahim goes to this outpost in the dark. They make him stop and ask him for the password. But he has forgotten the password. So they say, he must be the enemy. I asked if this took place in wartime. No, no, maneuvers. My friend Ibrahim say, look, I forget. I did know, but now I forget the password. But you know me. Anyway, you know it's Ibrahim. And he's right. They do know. It was Ibrahim. But since he cannot say the password, they shot him. Shot him. Dead? Dead, said my host with melancholy satisfaction. 
Oh, they were sorry, very sorry, because they knew it was Ibrahim. But you see, he did not know the password. And while he was dying in the tent they took him in, he said it was all right. They were right to kill him. Ibrahim is dead, killed by his friends, to serve what purpose? Assuming that, from the largest perspective, the aim of the Egyptian army is to protect Egyptians from Israelis, by what reasoning can everyone, including the victim, acquiesce in the shooting of one of their own, during peacetime maneuvers, for nothing worse than forgetting a password? The answer is that, at certain levels, military organizations have purposes all their own, that do not always match the reasons why an army is formed in the first place. The purposes of these maneuvers, it would appear, was not to protect Egyptians from Israelis, but simply to compel obedience from the troops. You might argue, of course, that extracting blind obedience from soldiers is a first step toward achieving an effective army. But most generals, I think, would disagree. They are apt to become very irritable when their own men deplete the size of their army, especially in peacetime. As a rule, generals want obedience and judgment together, and, if I am wrong about Egyptian generals, perhaps we have one possible explanation as to why they have made so little headway against the Israelis in the past. In any event, we have here a case where the basic purpose of the larger system, to defeat other armies, is contradicted by the basic purpose of a subsystem, to achieve blind obedience, and such contradictions are frequently at the core of stupid or crazy talk. Incidentally, this particular case demonstrates many interesting cases of crazy talk, among which is the widely popular and almost always disastrous identification reaction. That is, thinking by definition. If you do not know the password, you are, by definition, the enemy. And if you are the enemy, you must, by definition, be killed. This is a form of craziness that occurs in many different semantic environments, and it invariably provokes intriguing questions. For example, suppose one of the soldiers in camp, let us say someone about to go to sleep, suddenly realizes he has forgotten the password. By definition, he is now the enemy. Should he shoot himself? After all, what can be more dangerous than to have the enemy sleeping among you? Well, if there is an Egyptian general anywhere who would say, yes, he should, then we know for sure why they have been losing to the Israelis. When you are in a situation in which communication has broken down, in which there is the strongest impulse to say that someone is talking stupid or crazy, even if it's yourself, you have then three questions to help you uncover the problem. Do the purposes of the situation contradict the purposes of the individuals functioning within it? Do the avowed purposes contradict those that can be inferred from the way events are actually going? Are there contradictions in the purposes of different levels and subsystems of the environment? If we add to these questions developed in the chapter, The Semantic Environment, are there two different semantic environments competing for control of the situation? And are they contradictory in their purposes? We will have covered some of the important sources of conflict concerning purpose. Conflict, of course, is the key word here. When there is no perceived conflict in purposes, there is usually no awareness of a problem. To Ibrahim's friends, and to Ibrahim himself, for example, no question arose, so far as we know, about stupidity or craziness. Killers and victims alike share the same assumptions about the purposes of the environment. It is only when someone looks at the situation from a different set of assumptions that a problem arises. We must keep in mind that stupid talk and crazy talk are, first and foremost, problems. As I have said previously, they are not facts, like whether it snowed last Tuesday or not. 
They are products of a conflict between two different assessments of a situation. Relationships It's been a bad century for rules, or so it would seem, as everywhere political, religious, economic, and social arrangements have been found obsolete and rudely overthrown. But it is an illusion, this disdain for rules. As soon as one set of them is cast out, another is quickly put in its place. The anthropologists tell us that humanity is the tool-making species, no doubt, but humanity is also the rule-making species. Put two people together with a common purpose, and in two minutes they will turn themselves into an organization. Then they will produce a rule book, and soon after, a ritual or two to seal their bond. The scientific way to explain this instinct, for example, according to the anthropologist Edward Hall, is that man has a biological need to organize frames of reference in order to minimize his fear of isolation. An artistic way to put it, for example, according to the cartoonist Shel Silverstein, is to draw a picture which shows two emaciated men at the bottom of a hundred-foot pit. The walls of the pit are made of smooth granite and are unscalable. Even a bird could not get out of the pit, because it is covered with an impenetrable steel plate. Moreover, both men are chained to one wall, held fast by manacles which bind their arms, legs, and torsos. One of them now turns to the other and, with an indomitable light shining from his eyes, announces, Now here's my plan. This is as good a metaphor of humanity as any I know, for it conveys not only the desperation and absurdity of the human condition, but our unquenchable belief in the efficacy of order as a means of salvation. There is no such thing as an unstructured human situation, unless it be a madhouse. Indeed, we use the term madhouse to describe a situation whose structure we cannot discern, and the essence of a structure is, of course, rules. There are rules for street talk, rules for church talk, rules for courtroom talk, classroom talk, conference room talk, and even concentration camp talk. Rules for any human encounter with a past and a future. In other words, for every semantic environment. It is necessary, then, to identify and elaborate on the main categories into which the rules of talk fall. These may be placed under two large headings, relationship and content. I will deal here with some of the rules which govern relationship, and in the next chapter with those of content. By relationship, I am referring to the rules that define the emotional context of a semantic environment, the rules that form the container in which the content of our talk is presented. Suppose, for example, you were observing some complex human transaction in which the language being used, but only the language, was completely unknown to you. Or even better, suppose you were watching an event on television, but with the sound off. Would you be able to make some sense of what you were seeing? Of course you would. For example, probably be able to guess what the general purpose of the event is. And you might be able to tell who is running things and who isn't. You might also know when the event has been interrupted, and certainly when it has been concluded. That is, when are its time and space boundaries. You would know these things, and more, because all talk has a frame in which it occurs, and the construction and appearance of each frame are governed by certain conditions. The first of these is what may be called tone, and I am using the word here to include both atmosphere and attitude. By atmosphere, I mean the ambience and texture of a semantic environment. This is something over which an individual rarely has any control. 
When you walk into a church, or a ballpark, or a hospital, or the stock exchange, you become aware at once of a particular coloration to the place and to the events that are occurring there. This is expressed in many ways, among which may be the level of noise, the spatial boundaries, the dress worn, the arrangement of furniture, the pace of people's movements, the types of side activities going on, etc. In this, I am saying nothing astonishing. You do not need to be told that hot dogs aren't sold in churches, and that if they were, you would feel quite different about the meaning of what everyone is supposed to do there. However, it is not unusual, I might point out, to find people who are not especially sensitive to the atmosphere of an environment, and in such cases, their behavior is often thought to suggest some sort of stupidity, unless they can demonstrate that the environment in question is totally unfamiliar to them. I've witnessed recently a striking and barely believable example of such behavior at a wedding ceremony. One of the guests said, loud enough for those on my side of the chapel to hear, Think it through, Jerry! Just at the point where the rabbi had asked Jerry if he took his woman to be his lawful wedded wife, according to, no less, the laws of Moses and Israel. So far as I could tell, the wedding guest was not drunk or embittered. He merely mistook the synagogue for Shea Stadium, which, where I come from, usually happens the other way around. It is probably worth noting that errors in interrupting the atmosphere of an environment are exceedingly frequent when people are in foreign countries, and if I am not mistaken, the term culture shock refers to the disorientation one may experience from a repeated inability to interpret the signs and symbols of atmosphere. Even if one has some familiarity with the language, the simplest semantic environments in a foreign country, for example, asking directions or checking into a hotel, can be surrounded by uncertainty and a sense that you have somehow missed the point. I will go so far as to say that even the peculiar, to Americans, color of foreign currency contributes to a confused sense of the atmosphere of certain situations. Personally, I have always found it difficult to believe that red paper bills have any utility whatsoever outside of a Monopoly game. As a consequence, I experience a high sense of giddy delight in giving such bills to solemn foreigners, who apparently believe that they are getting something of value. The technical name for this belief of mine is stupidity. A second element of tone includes all of the devices by which individuals show what their particular attitudes are toward the environment itself. I am talking here about such things as intonation, forms of address, nonverbal gestures, grunts, groans, sighs, pauses, everything that indicates our enthusiasm or reverence or defiance or indifference toward the situation we are in. Naturally, this is something over which individuals have considerable control, and most people work exceedingly hard and carefully to match their attitudes with the atmosphere. Some, of course, work just as hard and carefully to do the opposite. This may take the form of giggling at a funeral, being morbid at a going-away party, wearing dungarees and a sweatshirt to an investiture, or yawning, grunting, and groaning at faculty meetings, which is my particular specialty. You have, doubtless, been in situations where people who have the emotional and intellectual resources to match attitude with atmosphere have chosen, out of precise conviction, to express their contempt for a situation by a bizarre breach in attitude. Such behavior, in its extreme forms, is often thought to suggest some sort of craziness, if for no other reason than that it speaks of great discomfort with social order and one's place in it. 
Now, it is very difficult to say exactly what are the right rules for the matching of attitude and atmosphere in each semantic environment. Every individual who is doing the right thing will do it in a unique way, and these differences in performance are, I believe, what we usually mean by the word style. Style being individual variations on a general theme which is composed, so to speak, by the purposes of the environment. However, it is generally not difficult to know when someone is playing a different tune altogether. As with so many other things, we become conscious of attitude when its rules are being breached. It would take a lifetime of scholarly work, such as Irving Goffman has done, to catalog the ways in which the harmony of a semantic environment may be interrupted and normal relationships wrecked. I will not attempt even a summary. I wish, however, to drive home one point about attitude, which is not often discussed and which bears heavily on my attempt to define stupid or crazy talk. I am referring to the ways in which people learn about it. So far as I can tell, we learn the rules of attitude informally. I should even say haphazardly. In any case, there is very little explicit instruction given in the rules of attitude, either in the home or to school, or anywhere else for that matter. People are expected to learn the rules, but are not taught them systematically, except, of course, by episodic don'ts. Ladies, don't sit that way. You must wait your turn to speak. You're making too much noise, etc. There are, of course, books like those on etiquette or recently on body language, which try to give advice on such matters, but they are invariably too specific to be much help in understanding the cultural meaning of attitude. They tell you, just as your parents and teachers did, what not to do in concrete situations. In this way, we may learn how to follow the rules, but we are not usually made conscious of the questions to which our attitudes, example our manners, are the answers. These questions have to do with our opinions of ourselves and of the social structure we must enter, and ultimately, of the advantages or disadvantages we see in becoming integrated into our culture. It has been said before, but it is worth repeating, that good manners or bad are the most direct expression of our political philosophy. Political philosophy means here our fundamental ideas about the obligations people have toward each other and toward the situation our culture has contrived for us. What we think about the Middle East or apartheid is flimsy stuff compared to the ways in which we manage our attitudes towards different semantic environments. Our attitudes, insofar as we consciously direct them, are our public ballots on the purposes of different social arrangements. We vote ourselves in or out by matching or mismatching attitude with atmosphere. In every situation, there is also a pecking order which tells us who talks when and to whom, and especially in what sort of way. This pecking order may be called the role structure of the environment, and one elementary distinction ought to be made at once. There are semantic environments whose role structure is more or less fixed, and there are others whose role structure is quite fluid. In the first instance, individuals have little choice but to assume their assigned places. To do otherwise is to wreck the environment altogether. In a classroom, for example, students are not permitted to go to the bathroom unless given permission will not, unless given permission, address the teacher by his or her first name, and will not even go to the chalkboard without specific approval to do so. When students do not follow these rules, teachers call it chaos. In church, you do not argue with the minister's sermon, nor do you give one of your own, unless specifically asked. 
To assume a new role for yourself in situations where your role has been rigidly defined is an act of sabotage. There are, however, semantic environments in which the role structure is quite fluid, which simply means that the rules about who may peck whom and how are not so well established that individuals cannot alter them to suit their needs and the strengths of their personalities. A first date between two people, or a community meeting of some kind, might be good examples. But, whether fixed or fluid, a role structure is always present, and ignorance of it is invariably dangerous. Let us suppose, for example, a man has been called for an audit by the IRS. Unless he is among the 12 or 13 Americans who have filed an unimpeachable tax return, he will naturally be one down in the situation, a child to the government agent's adult. In fact, even if he has filed such a return, he will be in virtually the same position, since it is the government, not the taxpayer, who defines what unimpeachable means. Therefore, if his wits have not been flown out the window, everything he does and says in his interview will try to convey that, if his return is not absolutely legitimate, he is. This role will be executed in much the same way one makes known more general attitudes toward the situation, through a differential manner of sitting, a formal mode of address, a proper waiting for one's turn to speak, and so on. There are as many effective ways by which this role can be expressed as there are styles of being a child. As long as the taxpayer role is appropriate, he and the examiner can get to the substance of the issue fairly efficiently. A noticeable problem arises, however, when he conveys a different definition of the role structure of the situation. For example, that the examiner is the child and he is the parent. Or, to change the metaphor, that the examiner is on trial and he is the prosecutor. What happens then is that his tax return becomes a secondary issue, and the integrity of the role structure becomes paramount. Everything goes on hold until the rules get straightened out. It is as if the words people exchange are the numbers in an arithmetic problem, whereas the role structure is the arithmetical sign, plus or minus, which tells you how the numbers are to be handled. Naturally, you don't get very far until it is decided which it will be, adding or subtracting. There are no rules, I have found, to which people are more sensitive than those of role structure, nor to which they will take greater offense when a breach occurs. Pity the poor child who intervenes when his parents are having an argument. Not only will the one whose cause he rejects turn on him, but so will the one whose cause he espouses. Why? Because the substance of the argument, that is, its content, is of little importance compared to the maintenance of the role structure of the environment. To challenge that structure is to threaten not only the authority, but the rationality of everyone in it. Of course, if such a challenge arises through one's ignorance of the rules, there is frequently an ample margin of tolerance for the breach. But if the challenge is motivated by defiance, then reprisals, you can be sure of it, are always quick and decisive. I remember with great clarity an incident bearing on this point, that occurred during my morbid career in the U.S. Army. While I was stationed at Fort Dix, my outfit was promised a weekend pass. One of our men was an enthusiastic 19-year-old romantic from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, who, in anticipation of the weekend, had arranged for his 17-year-old sweetheart to meet him in Trenton, where the two of them could frolic in the New Jersey sun for two days. In those days, the sun still shone in Trenton. But... 
On Saturday morning, at the last minute, so to speak, someone must have been disobedient, and in retribution all passes were cancelled, and every man was confined to the barracks. The young man was distraught, and pleaded with our lieutenant to allow him to go to Trenton anyway, or, failing that, at least allow him to telephone the hotel where his girlfriend was to stay. To these pleas the lieutenant turned two deaf ears, and as he started to leave the barracks was presented with an unexpected dilemma. "'I'll tell you what,' said the young private. "'Why don't we let the men in the barracks vote on it, and I'll go along with whatever they say?' For a moment the lieutenant did not react, as he tried to decide if this proposal was a consequence of naivete, in which case there were some well-known military traditions to cover the matter. Well, he was a lieutenant and not a semanticist, and probably felt strained at dwelling upon such distinctions. In any case, he did not pause long before adding another punishment to the one already given, on the grounds that the young private was making a mockery of the U.S. Army, which, of course, in his innocence or desperation, he was. I hope it is clear that, in this instance, the problem did not arise from a failure on the private's part to use the proper tone of voice. He was polite enough. His challenge to the situation did not originate in a contemptuous manner of speaking. The issue was his failure to grasp or accept the rules for decision-making in the army, which rules have never included holding plebsities. It is all a matter of seeing the parameters of one's jurisdiction, what you are allowed to say, as well as how you are allowed to say it. The private's remark is simply the equivalent of someone failing to stand in a courtroom when the judge enters, or of telling the government agent who is auditing your return that he does not know the tax regulations as well as you do, which may be true, but is monstrously irrelevant. There is one point about role structures which requires some special illumination, because it has so much to do with stupid and crazy talk. I am referring to its highly conservative nature. Role structures are exceedingly resistant to change, partly because people tend to be unaware of them, and partly because they give an essential stability to situations. There is an old joke, best told with a slight Jewish accent, about a jury who has been out for two days after having listened to arguments in a divorce case. When the jury returns to court, the judge asks what their decision is. Well, I'll tell you, Your Honor, says the foreman. We toned it over in our minds, and we've decided not to mix in. But, of course, juries must mix in. If they do not, the courtroom loses its point and everyone in it loses his bearing. Teachers who have experimented with novel role structures in the classroom can testify to the extreme reluctance of students to accept any assignment where, for example, there is a redistribution of authority. Students will accept a new content, let us say the study of archaeology instead of mathematics, but what is almost unbearable is a situation where the teacher is not the teacher and the student is not the student. It is probably an exaggeration to say that people come to love the role structure of situations, but they surely depend on it in the most fundamental way, and with good reason. Our worlds fall apart, even if only for a while, when we cannot predict how each of us will behave. This is true not only for solemn semantic environments such as courtrooms, schools, and boardrooms, but for any environment. Consider, for example, a baseball game. You do not get a baseball game simply by gathering together some men and a bat and a ball. You get a baseball game when the men agree to distribute themselves in a certain way and follow specific rules. Everyone has to play a predictable role or you have no game. 
If the pitcher declines to throw to the catcher because he has had a bad argument with him, you do not have a baseball game with a spiteful pitcher. You have no baseball game. If the umpire refuses to make decisions on balls and strikes because he doesn't want to antagonize anyone, you do not have a baseball game with an amiable umpire. Again, no game. Now, it is entirely possible to design something resembling a baseball game, to which there are no umpires, in which players vote on balls and strikes, and in which third baseman may, whenever the impulse moves him, take a turn at bat, the designated third baseman. But that would be another game, and it would be difficult to get very many people to take it seriously. A baseball game is, in fact, almost nothing but a role structure. Its content being wholly expressed in the sentence, the Pirates, four, and the Cubs, two. One might even say that the principal cultural value of baseball and other games is that they stress the importance of orderly role structuring as a means of cooperative action. The conservative nature of the role structure of semantic environments explains why in countries where major political evolutions have occurred, there is rarely any fundamental change in the structure of authority. We may get new names for old stories, for example, premier instead of czar, but the relationship between ruler and ruled stays exactly the same. The content of a situation, as Marshall McLuhan once said, may be likened to the bone a thief throws to the watchdog while he peacefully makes off with the goods. Like the dog, we are apt to busy ourselves with the bone and neglect to see what is really happening. Writers like George Orwell and Arthur Kostler, who saw, for example, that the role structure of the political environment in Russia was the same after the revolution as before, were thought by many in the intellectual community to be reactionary spoil sports. Those who see the same in China today get the same response. From one point of view, the tendency of semantic environments to maintain their role structure is quite important, since it obviously provides us with a basis for predictable continuity in life. But from another point of view, it can be seen as a source of the most extreme depravity. A few years ago, Professor Stanley Milgram conducted a now controversial experiment, which bears directly on this point. He arranged a situation in which people believed that they were to participate in a psychological experiment concerning memory and learning. They were put in a laboratory setting in which they were required to administer electric shocks to a person whose capacity to remember certain words was allegedly being measured. Actually, this person was an accomplice of Milgram's, was not actually wired to receive any shocks, and had no intention of remembering anything, thus requiring the true subjects of the experiment to administer what they believed to be increasingly severe shocks. Milgram, of course, was interested in finding out how far people will go in inflicting pain on another human being for no other reason than that they were instructed to do so by scientists within the context of an experiment. What he found out got him into an awful lot of trouble, a case of damning the messenger because of the unpleasantness of the message. Roughly 60% of the subjects were fully obedient, that is, on being told to administer the shocks, they did so, and in some cases gave shocks of such severity that they would have badly injured the victim, had the situation been real. Although many of these people suffered emotional distress later, realizing what they had done, Milgram was able to conclude that Hannah Arendt's conception of the banality of evil is more than a metaphor. The ordinary person, Milgram wrote, who shocked the victim, did so out of a sense of obligation, a conception of his duties as a subject, and not from any peculiarly aggressive tendencies. 
ordinary people simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part can become agents in a terrible, destructive process. Unquote. At the end of his study, he remarks that, quote, the ordinary person, unquote, Milgram wrote, quote, who shocked the victim did so out of a sense of obligation, a conception of his duties as a subject, and not from any peculiarly aggressive tendencies. Ordinary people simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part can become agents in a terrible destructive process, unquote. At the end of his study, he remarks that, quote, where legitimate authority is the source of action, relationship overwhelms content, his italics. That is what is meant by the importance of social structure, and that is what is demonstrated in the present experiment, unquote. What the italicized words mean is that what you ask people to do is not as important as the role which asks them to do it. Another way of saying this is that people will do almost anything to keep a role structure intact. At least a majority of people will. But this is not to say that because their behavior appears to be normal, it is not also crazy. I should say that in one sense, Milgram subjects were crazier than the Egyptian soldiers who killed Ibrahim. The soldiers could justify their actions on the grounds that if they had not shot Ibrahim, they, in turn, might have been shot. But what drove Milgram's subjects to such cruelty? A fear of not playing their parts. A failure to ask, why am I listening to this man? One may also ask, of course, what drove Milgram to inflict such cruelty on his subjects? The answer, no doubt, would be much the same a fear of not playing his part as a productive scientist, a failure to ask, what are the limits of the semantic environment of science? Of course, there are some people who will ask such questions, who will pay attention to the consequences of their roles, and who will not, therefore, easily say or do crazy things. They would not perform every role they were assigned, simply because their failure to do so would jeopardize the structure of the environment. There are questions to ask and decisions to be made, and there are environments that ought not to be perpetuated. But we would be foolish, I think, to underestimate the power that the rules of ordering possess over our behavior. The reason is, if I may return to an earlier metaphor, that these rules are the soil, sun, air, and water of a semantic environment. If communication is to happen, these elements must be present in a predictable pattern to support the life of the plant. And for the plant itself, that is the subject to which we must now turn. Context of white supremacy. Uh, that will end our audio segment for this week. We'll pick up next week uh, the chapter content. Content, still very early uh, in the book, but we made good progress for the day. Uh, the number to dial, 641-715-3640. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate i will share with listeners there was uh, a book that was published within the last three four years where it's a more recent book where they were talking about that experiment with stanley milgram where they said that they did a lot of doctoring of the data to make it seem more sinister that a lot, many more of the participants refused to administer 
the shocks uh, that they had to go through and cherry pick uh, the data to make it seem like a lot of the participants in that study uh, went ahead and, and administered these really uh, lethal levels uh, of shocks uh, in this experiment. But folks want to check that out. I can give the link or the name for the book later. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary you'd like to share on the second portion of the audio segment, uh, line should be open. Feel free to proceed. Folks that dialed in with a hand up have commentary. Can I be here? Yes, ma'am. Okay. I was trying to get myself together, but I'll go ahead and speak, even though I'm not all the way together. Um, for the, there was actually another part that I wanted to mention from earlier on, and it was talking about control. I'm not 100% sure if anyone mentioned it, but um, he talks about control as, and I'll just read the quote. He says, I mean by control is a thorough awareness of what is going on in a situation, including your own responses to it. And I think that that's important um, for those, for at least for me, I'll just make it personal um, for me, because uh, sometimes when I think about control, typically it's about like actually controlling the situation. Um, and so like trying to make it be how I want it to be. And then if I can't do that, there's a lot of like tension um, present because I can't control everything. I can't control anything actually. Um, but the, having a different understanding or a different definition or a different perspective about control is I think healthy that, you know, control actually just through my awareness um, and being able to control my responses to things. But for um, the second part of the reading I don't have pages um like for where everything is because I was just taking notes and listening while I was um but he talks about there that human like humans need have a biological need to organize frames of reference to um I know people just me saying that will probably like sparking people's minds where it is so y'all know that's great I don't remember exactly where he said that, but it was to pretty much because to buffer against the fear of isolation. And I'm not so sure that that's true. I do believe that we have a biological need to organize um, and not in a typical sense, like organize to make organizations, but I think it's in our nature. We're social creatures. And so I think we do have a biological need to organize, but I don't think it's a buffer against some fear of isolation. Um, just in like my very basic studying of stuff of like multicellular organisms and things like that, that we come together for different reasons. And the fear of isolation is, you know, I mean, I know we have more complex thinking and all that, but I think to purport that as if that's fact, that that's why we come together, I feel like that's misleading. Um, I think there are many other postulations as to why we feel the need to organize. And I'm not so sure that it's to buffer against some fear of isolation. It just might be that we're stronger as a collective and individualism is a Western thing that's maybe non-white people don't really have. Um, and that individualism is really destructive. But um, I thought when he talked about the red bills being from another, like other parts of the world, I, I feel like he's showing his racism. Like I wasn't sure what he was saying. Like, 
he gets giddy by giving people red bills because, like, I don't know, was that real red bills or was he giving them fake red bills and, like, watching them react? I wasn't sure what he was really talking about, but I felt like that he was practicing racism with those people he was giving red bills. Um, that could be incorrect, though. A role structure is always present. I think that that is, like, I was like, yeah, I can definitely see that I agree to that. Um, and then he says to assume a new role for yourself in situations. I did write the page number for that. To assume a new role for yourself in situations where your role has been originally defined as an act of sabotage. And I feel that personally, and I see that outside of myself on many like levels, that the minute, like I think that's one of the things that we're talking about when we become codified and we start talking, we start talking less and we stop engaging with white people and we begin to modify our behavior, that when we switch up, then white people begin to notice and then we deal with all of their violence and aggression. I think that's that, that our role has been clearly defined. And when we don't perform that role, it's an act of sabotage. And I just felt like he was talking about race, maybe not intentionally, like that's what he was thinking about, but I took it that way. And then um, the last thing I wanted to say is there's a truth and the dependence developed on role structure. Oh, um, and oh, okay. So what I was thinking here, is that he said it a little later, so I'm not exactly sure where that quote is, but he's talking about that there's a dependence that people have on the structure, on the roles that are structured in the, the social situation. And I think that there's some truth to that too. And I think that that might be part of the reason outside of the fact that we may not, we don't have a strong understanding in a, of the system of white supremacy, but that we're dependent on the role because without that role, we're not really sure how to be or what's going to happen, or, you know, there's more safety in the role than in, there is in um, discarding the role and creating something new. So um, those are just a couple of the things that I wanted to mention. So thank you all for listening. Appreciate that, Emmy. Uh, if other listeners are with us, if you all have commentary that you would like to share, feel free. Line should be open. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, so in the section purpose, um, I think on page 24, he says, uh, the semantic environment does not wholly belong to individuals. It is a product of collective imagination and belongs largely to, to tradition. Um, I think I hadn't really, I've thought about, I guess white supremacy and uh, a lot of things that are done to people on a daily basis as systems. And I guess every now and again, I need to be reminded that a system is, uh, or in this case, a semantic environment is, it's something that I think he said, like, it's a thing people have done hundreds or thousands of times before that proved to be useful to that, to society. I think that's how he put it on that, in that paragraph or the next two paragraphs. Um, and I guess I, I'd not really thought about it like that in a while that, the things that people do or don't do on a daily basis, they have been done thousands or not been done thousands of other times before, and somehow they're very useful to society. So I think um, I always like to use the phrase, uh, I don't like doing things that have been done before in terms of uh, fighting and being, uh, sorry, not fighting, <laughs> in terms of practicing counter-racism and trying to practice correct behavior and achieve justice. I think that knowing these patterns, these things that have been done a thousand times before and what they were useful toward. Um, I guess that's probably the point of this, uh, of all of this, but um, I guess I hadn't really thought about it as things that have been done thousands of times before, the semantic environment. Um, 
in the same section, purpose, he brings up that the conflict of purpose, um, I think is something that comes up often in it between the people who practice one thing and then people who practice another and what situations call for. And I'm thinking that the conflict of purpose between something like the Constitution and people who want to practice, say, white supremacy on the job is a good example of a conflicting purpose that actually may help to serve non-white people. Um, and kind of looking for those conflicts of purpose. I mean, it, it's something that's said on, I think, the workplace uh, episodes pretty regularly, but just to look for conflicts and, you know, things that are said in rule books and things that are actually done. Um, and I think, yeah, the Constitution is a good example. And I did like the emphasis on the section, in the section purpose on law, um, probably because a big part of law is deciding what the purposes of law should be and what they currently are. Um, like how uh, Brown versus the Board of Education was supposed to reinterpret like prior law, like just a huge emphasis on words and law and how things are supposed to be executed and how they're not. Um, I did like the emphasis on law in this section. Let's see. Hmm. Oh, I guess uh, as a final note, uh, black identity extremists, looking forward to figuring out what that word means with this book on words and uh, terms and the usage of language um, and seeing how it's written and kind of comparing it to what I'm listening to. That's all I have so far. My notes are kind of muddled. Right on. Appreciate that, Mel. Grand job narrating. Uh, if other folks have commentary that they want to make sure they get in, hand up. We have less than 30 minutes left in the broadcast. Uh, if you have any comments you want to get in 641-715-3640 the code 564-943-POUND press star 6 if you would like to participate man gets even better and racism is mentioned explicitly in the text uh, as he gets into like specific examples of quote unquote crazy talk uh, but it will get more detailed, more explicit as we go. A lot of this, in my view, is still just a part of his uh, basic framework. Uh, some of the notes that I took. The first paragraph for the chapter uh, purposes, chapter two, uh, on page, for me, is page 21, where he says, if the purpose of every semantic environment were singular and unambiguous, then among the several benefits that would accrue to the world is that the book before you would be unnecessary. Uh, and he talks about how just that alone, if everybody clearly understood what is the reason, what is the purpose that we're here, that we're doing this, if that was made clear. And I think Mr. Fuller has said frequently that a lot of times that's also one of the slick things that racists will do. They will give the impression that the reason that we're here is to raise money for AIDS or for starving black people on the continent or whatever it is. But the real reason that we're doing this is to practice racism and that right there uh, in many environments can generate a lot of confusion. And a lot of times they're able to use language where white people understand that it has been transferred. They got it. This is about practicing racism, white supremacy. We miss that uh, within the communication, not understanding racism. We don't understand that, but I thought that was really, really important, something to keep in mind. I think he even brings that up a little later when he gives out specific suggestions. Uh, some of the other notes, I think when Mel was talking before about the authority to decide what is good talk or, or speaking correctly or incorrectly on 24, when he says uh, good talk or excuse me, good in quotes talk, I will continue to insist throughout 
is talk that does what it's supposed to do in a particular situation, assuming the purpose of that situation is to serve rational and humane needs, uh, which, again, to me, sounds like it's not necessarily this has got to be perfect, quote unquote, King's English, but just we understood what was said and this is what we're supposed to be doing. There's nothing incorrect or unjust about this. That seems to be the way that he's uh, evaluating, quote unquote, good or uh, yeah, correct, good speech, good talk. Uh, continuing back to purpose when he says whatever purposes are served through such creativity they appear to work against the purpose of baseball that's the analogy to peanuts and charlie brown and all if you're in a baseball game or any other systematized event what you want must be expressed through what the situation demands reminded me a lot of dr welsing where she says that uh she used the example a lot of times that us not understanding racism, white supremacy was akin to uh, being on a football field with a tennis racket and just not understanding our purpose for being. And Mr. Fuller, I think, says that all the time that we should really be thinking about what's our purpose for being in existence. Why are you even here on this planet under a system of white supremacy? But I think a lot of times uh, it comes up with our words and our deeds. Uh, purpose, purpose, uh, getting a clear definition of purpose and even with the specific event that you're at what is the reason when you're at those meetings or in other talks with black people and things have started to veer off we get into name calling and calling each other coon and that sort of thing whoa 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 what is the purpose what is the reason that we're here and how is what we're talking about now who's the coon of the month how is that getting back to the purpose of why this meeting was called continuing let's see On when he gets for me, this is on page 30, kind of midway down where he says, I'm not contending that conformity and obedience are in any sense worse purposes than diversity and independence. I'm only saying that sometimes the latter purposes purposes are avowed, but the former are achieved or vice versa. There is, in short, a difference between what people say they want to do or ought to do and what they are actually doing. That pops up all the time, I would say, especially in uh when white people are supposedly talking about racism, where it might be stated that this is what they're doing, but that is not actually what is occurring. That sort of thing happens all the time. And again, just asking questions uh, to make sure if it seems like what's 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 being said and what's actually happening are not matching up. Just asking questions and pointing that out a lot of times can be enough to get other people to look to see, hey, wait a minute, we were supposed to be getting together for this, but that's not what's happening here. Uh, continuing. Let's see. On the notes that we get in section when. Oh, I thought this was great because he gave great uh, suggestions on page 35, uh, kind of midway down when he says, uh, when you're in a situation in which communication is broken down, in which there's the strongest impulse to say that someone is talking stupid or crazy, even if it's yourself, you then have three questions to help you uncover the problem. Do the purpose of the situation contradict the purposes of individuals functioning within it? Do the avowed purposes contradict those that can be inferred from the way events are actually going? Are there contradictions in the purposes of different levels and subsystems of the event? I think those are some good questions to keep in mind. There probably are even other good questions that you can can ask and think of when it seems like 
there might be a problem with the language communication is not going well to stop. What are we supposed to be doing here? Uh, are there things even in the environment that might be causing some of the problem uh, that is causing a breakdown in communication where we're not really understanding what's being uh, said? Um, just keeping that in mind on a, on a consistent basis. And I would say as folks that are supposed to be in the business of countering racism, that's the purpose. If it's something that we're involved in, this is supposed to somehow be connected to ending, eliminating permanently racism white supremacy. Uh, if we do not see a connection, then there should really be some, whoa, <laughs> let's get back in the question, Glenn. What is this for? What are we doing? What are we talking about? Because I'm not seeing an immediate connection. Um, I think those are most of the major notes uh, that I had in the two chapters, the two additional chapters that we read. Double check and see if any of the other folks dialed in with a hand up, uh, the caller, I think this might be Roz. Did you have commentary you wanted to add, sir? Greetings to you, Gus, and so excuse me, and to all the other callers and listeners. I missed the vast majority of the reading, but this is a book that I've been wanting to read with everyone. I had a meeting, so it carried me later than I thought. But I was just listening to what you and the previous caller was saying in regards to purpose. And, um, Man, you you just you just really got my mind just the firing those synapses firing. Um, it made me think of um, when the firefighter from Florida called in. Uh, I believe it was yesterday, um, and he was discussing Colin Kaepernick and how. Oh no! You know what? It was today on Tando. It was discussed. Somebody called in and discussed Colin Kaepernick and the fact that when he started protesting the protesting had to do with police brutality and the uh, racist abuse of black people and how Donald Trump has now commandeered that, that, um, that entire movement and made it personal and about him and the nation. So now no one's talking about police brutality. Everyone's talking about the disrespect of the flag. So there it is, the commandeering of our purpose right there. Donald Trump was able to commandeer the purpose of taking a knee and turn it into something completely different. It also made me think of when we read the delectable Negro, <clears throat> excuse me, when there, and this also relates to us going to jobs and things of that nature. That's where we spend probably the most time with racist, racist people are on the job. And again, you go to the job thinking your purpose is to do your job to the best of your ability so that the company can be as successful as possible. And hopefully the funds that are generated will trickle down to you in whatever position in the company you're in so that you can improve your life. That's the general understanding that we go to work with when we're more confused. Now in the delectable Negro, you had that slave. There was a story of a slave that was given a task to um, fry some fish <laughs> for the slave master. And the slave master purposefully had him fly the fish on the deck of the ship in the middle of a storm. So the slave did the best that he could to make this man's meal. He realized that he could not fry it, fry the food because the water was putting out the fire and destroying the oil for him to fry it. So he poached the fish for the slave master. Now the slave thought his purpose was to make the food that his master asked for but I'm, I'm just assuming I could be incorrect, but the slave might have been thinking, oh, the slave master wants to make this difficult for me. The reality was the slave master was setting him up to have a reason to further abuse and terrorize him, which he expressed when he got back and saw that he had 
sloppy, wet poached fish and not the fried fish that he requested. So to me, if you look at all areas, 10 areas of people activity, racism is warfare. Racism really is predicated on rhetorical ethics and deception. So if you look at every area of people activity, white people obfuscate purpose and they use our inability for those of us who are more confused about their functioning, they use our inability to discern the actual purpose of white people, which is to practice racism. You say it all the time, dogs bark, birds chirp, white people practice racism. That's the way I program myself to think about white people. In every scenario, their purpose is to practice racism. It's not to do anything of the sort sort. If it's something constructive that they're saying that we're being brought together for, I always go to the extreme and say, every time white people assemble is to practice racism. Now I need to figure out what are the layers and ways in which they're going to practice racism, even though they're saying that the purpose of us meeting, coming together, or working together is to do something else. Thank you. And I'll mute my line and I can't wait to get further into this book and listen to the uh, recording um, tomorrow. Thank you so much. Appreciate that, Roz. I uh, just only only thing I'll I'll add in other folks if they have anything they want to share in the last few minutes that's fine as, as well. Uh, the only thing I'll add in I thought it was significant important in fact <clears throat> when he talked about the relationships when you're in these uh, social settings there are rules in terms of uh, how people are supposed to function tone nonverbal communication even lots of different variables that go into different situation in terms of uh, how we what we expect to happen and what we expect people to say i think racism white supremacy is the primary factor go influencing those situations and i suspect what happens a lot of times probably in a variety of different situations is that a black person is not expected to ask questions. Uh, it's You have a very limited number of things that you are permitted to say and even how you are allowed to say them in a system of white supremacy. At least that's my you know conclusion, observation. And so as a victim of racism, black female, black male, you go into an environment, uh, you could even say it correctly. King's English and all. You pronounce it correctly, correct verbiage, but you said it too loud. You said it with too much black self-respect. You said it with too much confidence in your voice. You looked at the white person uh, in the eye. You asked a question. Uh, it could be a variety of different things in addition where you have somehow violated uh, the social norm of what's there by your words, your tone. If you said something, if you didn't say something, whatever it is where you end up getting in trouble. I think that sort of thing happens as well because that's the dominant factor uh, that is governing these interactions and what's supposed to say. And if you've violated a rule, I think he said that it can be dangerous. Uh, if you violate one of these rules in terms of how you're supposed to function in one of these settings, Black people, I think, know that very well uh, from how uh, many of us anyway, from miss said you said this or you didn't say something at this point or even like I said, the way you say it, tone of voice, all of that, which he encompassed in the text. I thought that was uh, important and worth uh, emphasizing also. Anything else, folks uh, wanted to get in debut study session? Yes, actually, something you said just blew my mind, Gus. Um, what you were just discussing when you talk about purpose in that context that you were just talking about, what you're talking about is purpose with power behind it. Because the white person that's in power, who let's say is assembling a meeting or whatever the case may be, they dictate the purpose based on what they say. So if there's a black person asking questions, which is going to bring clarity to the purpose of the meeting, 
when the real purpose is white supremacy, oops, you said something wrong, I'm going to check you, or your life could be in danger because you asked the wrong questions. The questions that are being asked is allowing people to think in a counter-racist manner to really get to the real reason of the purpose of that gathering, not what the white person in power said. So what they do is you're not supposed to ask any questions. It's the same thing when you go to church. If you ask questions about Jesus or the, the whole concept of Christianity, you're a blasphemer because the purpose is to dominate and control you through white supremacy in Jesus's name. So if you ask questions, you're a blasphemer. Shut up, get out the church. And it's the same thing with how white people practice racism in specific settings. When, when, when they're, when, because they're the most powerful people in the, in the space, then they dominate by power. And the power is what gives them the ability to obfuscate purpose. Because if they can shut you up, then everything they say, they can execute their plans without any, any mistakes or any, um, any setbacks. But the moment somebody, especially black or non-white, starts asking the proper questions to discern honesty and truth, where the racism and the, pur- the purpose is in, in regards to white supremacy being practiced is elucidated, then you're putting them in a position where they feel they have to violently shut you down because you now reveal truth in a way in which it exposes them for who and what they are. So it reminds me of Tim Wise. When you would talk to Tim Wise on those five occasions that he was on the show, and he's running around going to the vast majority of black churches telling black people he's a counter-racist white man, but he's never telling them, me, this white man is standing before you, I'm also racist too. He's making it seem like he's different from the rest of them. So the purpose is for this white man to come in like Jesus and save the day by telling black people stuff that they already know. It's just a white man saying, it. okay, these are the things that we're doing to you. Okay, so we start thinking, wow, he's a great white guy. He's cool. You know, he's telling the truth and da-da-da-da-da. But the reality is the purpose is he's practicing refined racism too because he hasn't told you the truth that he's racist. It took you on your show with justice, I wonder how she's doing. I miss her so much. With justice to expose him for who and what he was, just by asking the right questions and staying focused on white supremacy, which if you look at white people, there's not an arena in which they don't practice white supremacy, even in their own relationships with, with other whites. When a white man marries a white person, kind of veer a white from the female, text a little bit. Oh, oh, okay. My own bad. I was just saying, well, the purpose, again, is just to dominate. So even in their personal relationships, they might think the purpose is we're married, we're a white man and woman, but they still try to dominate each other even in marriage. So everything about them is white supremacy and racism in some form or fashion. Thank you. I'm in my line. Indeed. Indeed. Appreciate that, Roz. Uh, did folks have any final comments they wanted to get in? Last, we only have about five, six minutes left before we wrap up anyway. Anything folks wanted to get in before we wrap up? First session on Mr. Neil Postman. grand soon folks are satisfied again if you do not have the text this is uh, a book that is out of print i know some people did say they had difficulties so i posted it on my facebook page uh, i tweeted it and i will include it in the description for the broadcast so that you should have easy access to download have the entire book scanned and right in front of you if you want to read in advance for next week or if you just want to have it in front of you as we continue through the reading uh we will pick up Next week, uh, I think next week that would put us on the chapter content uh, on page for me. It's on page 53. He starts off with Woody Allen. 
hilarious with this week and all the attention on uh, Harvey Weinstein and his alleged sexual misconduct in another white person accused of sexually molesting for decades is the reference point to start off next week's section of crazy talk, stupid talk. In the meantime, we'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. We'll catch up on what's gone down the last week. We'll be here on Sunday, Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Uh, the early broadcast, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific this Sunday. Uh, tune in if you have uh, questions, guest suggestions, complaints. If you have questions about the text, uh, just drop me an email until justice at gmail.com. In the meantime, thanks for all the folks who chimed in, listened in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Friday evening. Uh, I will say again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I know consuming alcohol, other drugs or what have you. I know that does not help improve communication. I've seen that firsthand. Uh, that would be one reason alone uh, to consider sobriety. Uh, I've seen way too much evidence that racists, they have done a job and they tend to greatly exploit and take advantage of non-white people who are not thinking correctly under the influence to just abuse and terrorize us even more. If you got to consume, get to one spot and stay there someplace where you know you won't have to be around whites or victims who will be non-constructive. Uh, have all that in mind so you can be codified and keep yourself safe if you have to consume anything. Certainly make sure you don't have to be behind the uh, wheel of a vehicle. Uh, I, maybe you don't want to be in a vehicle at all. If you got to consume anything as a driver or even as a passenger, it can be dangerous and there is lots of evidence to substantiate that. If you're getting behind the wheel, buckle up. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with enforcement officials. Keep that in mind for sure for the weekend. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.